Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vander. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Mount and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 95. I'm your host, Dustin, and we are bringing you the latest comic news from the weeks of June 17th through June 30th. And we are bringing you this despite the fact the entire United States is in a crazy weather climate catastrophe with wildfires on one side of the country, heat waves on all sides of the country, and storms. Speaking of storms, uh, Stella is actually joining us via phone because she has no internet. That's how dedicated we are to the Batman universe. It's true. All right, so I'm Dustin. This is a very, very hot Donovan. This is Joe, and if you guys think you have it bad, I hung up my washing today, and then it started raining, and I had to go out, get it all back in again. So, you know. (laughs) And here I am in the first ring of hell. This is Stella. All right. Like I said, June 17th to June 30th, they have eight books to cover a DCU spotlight. Lots of stuff, and we'll try to keep it as condensed as possible for you. But let's get right into comic news. Various number of news items posted over the last couple weeks. Starting off on June 18th, Scott Snyder talked with Newsarama about his work on Batman number zero as well as beyond that. Not a whole lot of reveals about beyond that, but uh, for this interview, I will read for Newsarama. And Don will try to stay with us when he reads the long excerpts from Scott Snyder's responses. Oh, God. Scott, we just heard about Batman number zero that's coming up in September. We've also seen solicitations for number 12, which focuses on the character named Harper that helped Batman in a recent issue. Can you describe what we'll see in those two issues after the Court of Owls finishes up? Issue 12 is a standalone story that revisits the character named Harper Rowe, who saved Batman when he escaped the labyrinth in issue 7. This young woman pulls him out of the icy waters of Gotham Bay, and she basically shocks him back to life. And this is her story. So it's an important one-shot that features her. And Becky Cloonan is on art. I've been a fan of hers forever. And Andy Clark is actually doing the backup, which is a continuation of the feature. It's one big story about Harper and Batman and Gotham. After the really ambitious scope of something like Court of Owls and the bombastic, fun, over-the-top action that's going to come at the end of it, we wanted something quieter that's more of a palate cleanser that was really deep psychological and emotional story about what it's like to live in Gotham if you don't have a lot. You know, you live in a bad neighborhood called the Narrows and, you know, you're emancipated from your parents and just trying to make it in school and work to make enough. And you're trying to be a hero in your own life in a terrible place. So it's an issue I really care about a lot. And then we have our Zero issue, which I'm really excited about. And it will give you an important slice of Bruce's life from when he first gets back to Gotham after his travels. It will happen within the shadows of Batman Year One, taking place in a moment of time that you haven't seen. And I think it will be very surprising to people and exciting. You'll see some things that will catch you off guard and will get you excited to see what's coming. Both issue number 12 and Zero have elements that are going to play into next year of Batman in a big way. Can you describe the story we'll see in Batman number zero? You said it's something that fits within year one. Yeah, I love the period where Bruce first gets back. That's in year one after he's been traveling. But I feel like because of the way year one is structured, jumping month to month, there was room to play within that time period without stepping on anything that was already there. So I was really interested in doing the story that had to do with Bruce getting back to Gotham and not being sure of himself, but also being a little too angry and a little too cocky just in that way and taking a few missteps. 
So my number zero issue is about Bruce returning to Gotham after being away for years, but it takes place before he's wearing the bat suit. It focuses on Bruce setting up shop in Gotham before he moved to Wayne Manor, before he was part of Wayne Industries, and before he adopted the symbol of the bat. It's really a story about Bruce needing to grow up and be a man. My number zero issue features a Bruce who's not there yet as an adult. He's fun to watch because he does make mistakes and Alfred doesn't approve of what he's doing. And there will be some fun surprises as to how he's proceeding as a vigilante at this particular time period that you haven't seen before. This exists in the crevices of year one and it tells things that you haven't seen that seem new, but honor what's come before. So there will be some new twists and new surprises and new enemies and new allies. We haven't heard anything about October, but it sounds like you'll be ready to start with a new storyline. Can you tell us about what's coming up after issue zero? But the storyline coming after that, with issue number 13, I can't really talk about it yet. But all I can say, and I've said this before, but I'll say it officially here, is that it features my favorite villain from the Batman Rose Gallery. And it's going to be really fun and big, and Greg is with me on that too. So he'll be on number zero, and he'll be on the next story starting in October with number 13. All right, so that's that interview. Needless to say, you know, I know I say this, I'm a broken record whenever I say this, but enhancing the history of Batman and enhancing even more so the events around Batman Year One, I'm all for that. I'm looking forward to these zero issues, even though some of my co-hosts are not. I want the history expanded upon every single month, and I, that's what we've been seeing in some of the series, and I think that's what we're going to see in all of the series come this September. I think that like, if it wasn't for Scott Snyder, I would not be as interested in number zero as I as I am because I am interested to see how he's going to play with Batman year one because I like Scott Snyder's writing I, that was like one of the only zero issues of Batman that I'm looking forward to yeah I'm, I'm, I'm down for him I'm interested to see how he plays around like the year one timeline and see what he changes and what he doesn't yeah I mean there's always that cliche thing of people say how year one is more of a Jim Gordon story than a Batman story so I think there's definitely plenty of room to explore Batman in the year one time period also I'm looking forward to seeing some Andy Clark artwork and it's interesting that Scott Snyder is also bringing in the Narrows as part of the Batman universe in the comics. All right, so then on June 19th, Kyle Higgins talked with Comic Resources about his work on Nightwing. So with that, I'm going to read for Comic Resources, and Joel will read for Kyle Higgins. Your next arc in Nightwing is the impressively titled Republic of Tomorrow Today. Last time we talked to you, you were saying the next story you had planned was The Prince of Gotham. Is that part of Republic of Tomorrow? Well, stuff changes sometimes. The whole Prince of Gotham is one component. It's an idea, in my point of view, on Dick Grayson going forward. Issue number 10 is called The Tomorrow People. There's this group, the Republic of Tomorrow, that with their leader, who's named Paragon, believe in order to save Gotham City, and they have to kill all the superheroes. They believe the superheroes are the city's real problem, and that Paragon himself is Gotham's true son. This model of excellence, of virtue. He thinks he's kind of this saviour, which brings him into conflict with Nightwing for a couple of different reasons. On top of that, the arc will be introducing a lot of new characters who will be on the book going forward. We've got everyone from Deputy Mayor Cavana, who was introduced in Night of Owls, but you'll see more of him in this arc. Sonia Zuko is coming back to the Batworld, and she'll be in the book going forward. You've got a new detective who may or may not be framing Nightwing. And Nightwing himself, Dick Grayson, is coming out of everything with the owls and looking towards the future. He's taking a new approach. He's got some ideas on how to make a difference in Gotham City. What's happening with Haley's? Does Dick still own this albatross of a circus hanging around his neck? Yes, Dick does still own Haley's Circus. The future of Haley's Circus will be touched upon in issue number 10. When we see that, Dick is planning Haley's Circus plays into that. Whether or not it will be coming to fruition, you'll have to wait and see. But when readers see issue number 10 they will have a better idea of what the future has in store for Haley's. Again, 
to me, it all speaks volumes to who Dick is as a character. Just because there is this terrible past associated with Hayley Circus doesn't mean that Dick's going to give up on it. There's a theme in the book, and it, again, really speaks to and comes out of what Dick is as a character. But it's a theme about change, and about a lot of the characters or backstories or directions. The only constant is that things never stay the same. You can say that about comics and storytelling in general, but in Nightwing, in particular, he's a character built on that core of change. Having been Robin, then Nightwing, then Batman, then Nightwing again, Looking at Haley's circus, it's very logical to think he's going to see an opportunity to reinvent it. He sees what it could be, rather than what it was. All right, so that's the end of that interview. I've got to say, well, we're obviously going to be reviewing issue 10, and I'll explain what's happening with the circus when we talk about that issue. But the, the interesting thing that I got out of this interview was, he says, well, stuff changes sometimes. The whole Prince of Gotham is one component, it's an idea. I'm wondering if it actually was an idea that he was planning on doing a story about or whether it was something that DC said, you know what, hold on, let's not do that right this second. Let's do something else. And that's where this Paragon character came from. I do have to say, I think it is an interesting idea that there's a group out there that thinks that the heroes within Gotham City are actually the reason of why the city is down the crapper because, you know, it's a valid point. It's been brought up before, but it is a valid point in seeing this Needless to say, obviously, I was a fan of Nightwing number 10. Yeah, I'm not going to say too much because I want to expand my thoughts on Nightwing number 10 too. I will say that, like, I didn't gleam upon what Paragon's deal was in the issue. So to kind of read it here, I'm interested. I kind of have mixed feelings. I hope it turns out well. I think it's an interesting idea, but I'm wondering, I, I, I kind of fear it might not be turned out well. So I'll talk about it more in the, during the Nightwing review. I am happy to hear that Nightwing is going to be staying more in Gotham rather than the traveling business with the circus because that was something that sort of turned me off. I just really felt like he had a home base, which he really focused upon in number one, and then he was going everywhere. But in my opinion, and we'll, of course, get to this in issue 10, it really seemed like he had sort of given up on the circus. It was more of like a hands-off conversation that he had. So I don't know if I necessarily believe that, but I guess we'll see how everything turns out with his plans and what he's planning on doing. All right, so moving right along, on June 21st, the source announced that comic shops across North America will celebrate the arrival of The Dark Knight Rises in theaters by giving away a Batman comic the day prior to the film's release. On July 19th, your local comic shops will be giving away free preview issues of Batman Earth 1. The first chapter of the upcoming graphic novel will be included in the issue from Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. Now, this Batman Earth 1 is actually releasing this week, the week that we're recording this, in comic shops, and it'll be in bookstores the following week. And as I've said in the past, we will be reviewing this book along with all the other graphic novels that have come out in the past year, or just over a year, about 14 months come this August. So be looking out for that. All right, so moving right along, June 25th, Greg Hurwitz, the new writer on Batman the Dark Knight, talked to Newsarama about what he has planned for... Batman the Dark Knight and how he's going to reinvent Scarecrow within the pages of the series. This interview, again, is a little bit longer, but there's a lot of interesting things in it. So for this one, I will read for Newsarama, and Don will read for Greg Hurwitz. Greg, there are four ongoing Batman titles that star Bruce Wayne in the lead. As you start your new run on Batman the Dark Knight, what does it offer that readers might not get reading the other Bruce Wayne comics? 
I think one of the things that Scott Snyder does so masterfully in Batman is really tied into the history of Gotham. It's very mythology rich. I really like Scott's writing, and I think he's doing a fantastic job on Batman. And Batman and Robin, of course, deals very heavily with the relationship between Damien and Bruce, and it's something that I think Pete Tomasi has been handling so well because Damien is not the easiest character to write, and he's really managed to nail that. One of the things that I've liked in Dark Knight is the freedom to write an arc that's very propulsive and thriller-geared with a lot of action. It's also very, very intensely psychological. That's not a surprise since Scarecrow's your first villain, but is that psychological side of Bruce also an interest of yours? It is. It's the angle of Batman that I enjoy and that I really want to explore, but I'm not implying that the other books aren't psychological as well, because I think that it plays very heavily into every book that's playing with Batman. But I have a lot of room in there to dig into aspects of Bruce's psyche and the way that it interlocks with certain rogues. And because of David Finch, I give him a lot of elbow room because he's such a heavyweight to really open it up with big visuals. So for me, a lot of what the book is a counterpart between aspects of these characters' psychology and trying to shine a light on in those dark corners, whether it's Scarecrow or Batman himself, interspersed with these broad, stretching, epic, dark visuals. Now that you're a little further into the run, how has Scarecrow's story evolved into something that defines your run, and why did you want to use Scarecrow to kick it off? Well, when I originally chose this story, I was springboarding off this redefining we did the Penguin in the miniseries, I had a really strong urge to do that with another character from the Rose Gallery, and I've always been fascinated by the Scarecrow. Part of that is that I love he's a psychologist. I love the academic background paired with the unhinged aspect of the character. I started to think, what would make someone that obsessed with fear? What's something that could happen in someone's childhood to make that a defining emotion and motive that propels them through their life? So I started to build that backstory much in the way I built a different type of backstory for the Penguin. And for me, it became this dark counterpart to what Batman's relationship is with fear, because the things Bruce Wayne fears are different from what you would conventionally think on the surface. He dealt with an enormous amount of loss early in his life, and taught him to be afraid of a lot of human emotion, some of them positive because of what the cause can come from that. And so that's the interlocking aspect of this particular character from the rogues gallery for me. It's almost like they're both dark foils, you know? It's not just darkness and light, it's sort of darkness and darkness. And that's what the first cover from the issue number 10 is. The top half is Batman, and the bottom half is the Scarecrow. All right, so that's the end of that interview. Again, this is another title I'm not going to say a whole lot about because we're going to review this issue, this episode, and again, I want to talk more about that when we actually get to that. I feel like this particular interview, a lot has been said that we've heard, you know, countless times before, the fact that, hey, we're going to take this old and great character, but I'm going to give a new spin on it, a new origin, you know? And he even mentioned Penguin, and of course we had this before, and we've got some sort of two-facing going on, but what was really great about 10, and yes, we are going to get to it, is that I think he shows that, yes, he is a new thing, and it really comes across well. So while his words are the same thing we've heard time and again, he puts his money where his mouth is, and that two thumbs up for that. And I would agree with that completely. I think he's done a very good job at telling stories with villains that haven't necessarily been touched since the New 52. All right, so next up, on June... 26th, SFX Magazine, which is their also their website, is reporting that Dini is in the final stages of sealing a deal to write a graphic novel set in the Batman universe. While details are few and far between, Dini did state that it is going to be some time before we actually see the release. This is obviously not uncommon as it took nearly two years for both Batman Earth 1 and Batman Death by Design to release after they were first announced or hinted at. But, needless to say, what is this new story that Paul Dini has since after he left Gotham City Sirens and Streets of Gotham. I remember him saying something about he wanted to do something else because he'd done a lot of Batman recently. And for him to come back not even a year and a half later just seems as if 
maybe he's missing Batman a little bit more than he let on originally. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm interested to see Dini's new ideas for the New 52 and what he has in store. Mainly because he's not really like a revisionist kind of guy. He's really more of like somewhat a writer who kind of like brings in new stories, but doesn't really like reestablish or restart things. So I'm wondering if it's just a story or if it's if it's like a sort of a one-off story or if it's like sort of a story that the New 52 benefits from. I kind of disagree with Don in that, I mean, if you look at the animated series, he brought in Harley Quinn, reinvented Mr. Freeze, and then all throughout his Streets of Gotham run, he was just, you know, throwing in new characters left, right, and center. But it will definitely be interesting to see his take on the new universe if it takes place in that and just seeing him again, because I think we all quite enjoy Paul Dini as a writer. And his most recent stuff has really been the Arkham Asylum, Arkham City stuff, hasn't it? Yes. It would be nice if it weren't Batman-focused, but if it was something else-focused, like maybe minor characters, like a Jim Gordon comic, or getting back to the GCPD focus, because I know those comics were really good, or just characters that are sort of in the periphery of Batman, but still related to him, and I think that would be pretty interesting. But I guess we'll just wait and see and hope that it's not Batman Odyssey. That's really all we can do. You would never do such a thing. All right, so... Moving on to the next piece of news we have, on June 26th, Greg Hurwitz talked about Detective Comics and Dark Knight's Zero issues. So for this interview, I will read for Newsarama, and Joe will read for Greg Hurwitz. Then let's start by talking about that story for The Dark Knight number Zero. We've already heard from Batman writer Scott Snyder about his issue Zero and what area it covers in Bruce Wayne's history. What does Batman The Dark Knight cover? For The Dark Knight, I wanted to write and show finally the story that's beneath the story to what happened in the alley outside the movie theatre. I wanted to show, finally, who Joe Chill is, what is the mystery that's behind him, and how did that comprehensively redefine Bruce Wayne's worldview. It's a young man who is scarred and defined by his enormous childhood loss and is obsessed with finding the answers that are beneath it, and what those answers are will prove completely defining for him and his mission and the worldview for the rest of his life. When you were exploring this story, were you able to change a little bit of what had been told before about Joe Till and the events surrounding his parents' murder since this is the New 52? Yeah, absolutely. It's a new Joe Till. There's new information that's discovered. There are new types of encounters and questions that are raised, and there's a new outcome. Let's talk about Detective Comics number zero. What story will you be telling in that issue? I wanted to do something in that story that focuses on Bruce during his period of traveling to Tibet and around the world. The Joe Chill story I'm telling in Dark Knight hooks into Batman's psychological underpinnings around loss and grief. But I wanted to tell a story in Detective that's a very action-geared, thriller-geared story that solidifies his views on intimacy and relationships. That's one of the things that I think that is so defining of Bruce Wayne. He's kind of in a castle on a hill, you know? No one can touch him. He stands alone. I wanted to show a story about how, at the hands of his former master and a former Buddhist warrior... He took in some lessons while he was traveling, becoming who we know as Bruce Wayne. But what are some of those other lessons that he might have learned about what human closeness means? And it has to be overlaid on top of what he's already learned human closeness means from his parents, and what he also learned the cost of that can be outside that movie theater on the fateful day. All right, so that's the end of that interview. I've already said I'm not going to continue on zero issues I'm looking forward to. I'm seeing, and I can't wait to see how they expand this history that there's been so many questions related to the history since the New 52 launched. I can't wait to see what they do. I'm definitely not looking forward to this Joe Chill thing. Hopefully it's like a setup for something different. I'm not exactly sure what's going on, but if they do out-and-out reveal who Joe Chill is, then like we've already discussed, 
I don't think it's going to be beneficial towards the new universe. All right, and then moving on to our last bit of news on June 29th, Tony Daniel announced that he is leaving Detective Comics. <laughs> Daniel announced through his Facebook page that he will be leaving Detective Comics. His last issue for writing duties will be 12, and his art will be last seen in Detective Comics number 0. He stated on his Facebook page, My Batman Detective run is coming to an end. My final written and drawn issue is Detective Comics number 12. I'll be producing the art only for issue 0. It's been a long and adventurous journey for me, but there are other projects in the pipeline that I've been itching to do, and I felt the need to scratch the itch. Next week, DC will reveal some information on what one of the projects is I'm involved with. Then I'm gearing up for something I've wanted to do for a while in early 2013 a project where I hope to grow even more as an artist and as a professional. It is top secret and probably won't be revealed until the fall. I want to thank all my friends, family, and fans for supporting me through these crazy last few years. Onward and upward. Everyone who listens to this podcast knows full well that I'm not a huge fan of what Daniel's been doing on Detective Comics. That's that's not a surprise. So when he announced that he was leaving the book, you know, I was I was pretty content with knowing that he wasn't going to be on the book anymore. But there's another side to look at the situation. And that's the side of, well, there's fans out there who do like what Daniel's doing. I honestly cannot figure out why. John Rope, our BBFB contributor as well as a member of the site, has defended Daniel numerous times over on the website through comments and in emails that he sent over. But the reality is, I think the problem is, I think there's a minority out there of people who like Daniel's work, which is very hard to believe considering Detective Comics have been in the top 25 comics repeatedly month in and month out since the launch of the New 52. And as much as I'd love to say that's because of the quality that it is, it's not. So the question is, why has the title been so high? Is it just because it's a Batman book? Well, if that's the case, that's not a very good idea either because Batman and Robin most of the time is ranked lower in sales than Detective Comics. And Batman Robin is, in my opinion, much better quality than what we've been seeing in Detective Comics. But that all being said, the other side that I want to look at when it comes to this situation is, okay, so starting with issue number 13, there's going to be a new writer on Detective Comics. It's not going to be Tony Daniel, and they're going to need a new artist on Detective Comics. Now, there's a couple things that are interesting here. One, if Detective Comics is continuously in the top 25 or even the top 15, they're going to need to get somebody, you know, who can pull their weight as far as just the name alone to pick up that title and start writing it and continue to keep sales where they're at. They're also going to need a permanent artist. Now, interestingly enough, there was a tweet that I happened to come across on Saturday that was from Brett Booth. For those of you who don't know, Brett Booth is the current artist on Teen Titans, which I read, not everybody does read that, but I read that series, and I really enjoy Brett Booth's art. And he made a tweet specifically saying something on the lines of, I thought it was going to be announced that I'm going to be the new artist on Detective Comics, but not yet. Trust me when I say, if he came onto the book, that'd be great, but still, there's going to have to be somebody big as far as a writer goes to get brought onto the series to really keep the book where it is in the sales charts. Because Brett Booth, as good of his art is, and as much as I appreciate his art in Teen Titans, he's not a David Finch. He's not going to sell books just because he's on the book. So the writer that they're going to have to pull, hopefully they don't play the game where they just get a writer to fill in for a couple issues until they figure out exactly who to actually write this series. That's my hope. So, 
Well, this is such a shame. I mean, it's such a tragedy to the writing community of the Batman writers in history. Okay, I'm not going to like dispense with the false saccharine emotion. I am very happy that he's gone, and I never want to see him again as a writer. I will say that as an artist, I never disliked him at all. In fact, it's surprising to me how long, when I think back on how long he's been drawing Batman. He's been drawing Batman since, was it 2008? When Grant Morrison, R.I.P.? Or was it before then? It was right after R.I.P. Started with Batman Battle for the Cowboys when he was writing. He started doing the art. He did the art during Black Glove, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's been in the Batman universe for almost five years. Yeah. I mean, as an artist, I've always liked him. I mean, he wrote, or I didn't, he write, he didn't write at all, but he did draw like one of my favorite Batman issues of like probably the decade, Batman Dies at Dawn, where like he's like in that torture chamber and like one of the crazy Batman from the Black Glove is like torturing or whatever. That was, that was awesome. And like, I never ever doubt the guy's skills. I didn't even remind him that much when he was writing Dick Grayson as Batman, but like this past year when him on Detective has just been brutal. You know, I'm not going to, I've slagged on the guy enough already. I wish him well. I hope that whatever he does in his future endeavors is successful for him because he is a very talented creator. And I hope that even if he chooses to write something, I hope it is successful. You know, it's a lot like Kevin Smith. I like Tony Daniel in a lot of ways. I just don't want him to ever write Batman again. So uh good luck to you, guy. I don't think I've ever disliked Tony Daniel as much as Don and Dustin, but I'm definitely not upset that he's leaving the books. I'm looking for someone a bit more, I guess competent i always have liked his art and i always will like his art i'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to start doing his new projects and seeing if i'm interested in those but like i said i'm not disappointed that he's leaving but i hope he does well like don was saying in his future projects i'm definitely interested in seeing who's going to take over but i i have no clue who it could be but it's definitely going to be interesting seeing the direction of the book i just wonder if we're going to see the conclusion of where joker's face is <laughs> before it wraps up in Two issues. They wreck on that, hopefully. Oh, gosh. That's definitely what I was thinking, Joe, is, oh, dear, <laughs> if he leaves, are we ever going to... And it's not like I actually cared about that story, but there is sort of something vexing about storyline and just things being kind of left out there and you don't know what's going on. And it seems like such a focal point at the very beginning and his face is in Gotham. He's headquarters, so who knows? I do feel like you can't necessarily rely on those sales numbers because it seems like there's no rhyme or reason. I think, you know, people buy detectives potentially purely for the name. I know that there are people out there that enjoy it, but I don't know how Red Hood, which I believe is pure garbage most of the time, like that is, it seems like it's doing well. It may not be in the top 20, but there certainly are no rumors of it being canceled like poor Batwing. And I think Batwing has something potentially to offer people. So I don't know if I can lay too much stock in that, but just, you know, every kind of resounding off. You know, I wish him the best. I'm glad that this leaving, this retiring, I guess, of the book is on a more positive note than some of the things that, you know, we've been here, like George Perez's interview, you know, everything that had happened sort of on Superman and the lady from Batwoman leaving. So it seems like a more positive leaving than some of these negative, like just you know, people weren't taking my creative ideas and things are being changed. So that's good. Yeah, I wonder what the direction will go from here. And there is this huge announcement coming out. And part of me actually wonders if Scott Snyder is going to take over Detective as well and have both main kind of like the flagships of the Batman universe. And I don't think that would be such a bad idea. That would really kind of put the ball rolling. That would really pull sales up. If you've got Snyder on Detective again, that could be a good thing. And with him on Detective and Batman, he could really get some good storylines going there as well. But 
who knows? I am not an oracle, if you will. But, yeah, so good luck to you, sir. And thanks for the stories. I guess they were entertaining to a certain extent. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that is all of the news. Uh, One thing I do want to point out is we are recording this on July 1st, which is a Sunday. And we have numerous sources that have been telling us that tomorrow, July 2nd, there's going to be a giant announcement as far as the Batman universe goes in comics. We know for sure we are going to find out the new villain that Scott Snyder will be writing on in his next story arc, which kicks off in number 13. We've also been told that based off of what is going to be announced tomorrow, it's going to show prospect for the rest of the Batman universe. We don't know exactly what that means. We do know that most likely the solicitations for the Batman Universe are going to be released tomorrow, and they'll probably announce what's happening with Detective Comics as far as creators go, and they're also going to be announcing the villain that Scott Snyder's going to be working on. Just to throw it out there, we're going to each predict who we think the villain that Scott Snyder's going to work on, just so that when it is actually announced, we can look back and say, hey, who had it right and who had it wrong? So my prediction is that it's going to be the Riddler. It's either the Riddler, the Ventriloquist, or the Riddler's daughter, Enigma. I am sure that it's going to be the Riddler. (laughs) Why not Duella Dent if you're going to go with somebody's daughter? I wonder if he's going to take a stab back at Jane Jr., but I wonder if that's sort of over and done with. But I'll I'll, I'll throw my hat in for either Jane Jr. or Riddler as well. Saying that, though, it could be a Dark Knight Rises all over again. Everyone's certain it's going to be the Riddler, and then it's someone completely different. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. again. Maybe it'll be Bane. <laughs> I thought about that, but then he was already ruined by the Dark Knight comics. That's so. true. All right. So that is all of our news. Let's get right into our comic book reviews. And the first book we're going to do is Batman Beyond Unlimited, number five. Yeah, yeah. I warn you, I can be a difficult taskmaster. I accept nothing short of excellence from all who work for me. I think I can handle it. Very good then, Mr. McGinnis. Welcome to my world. Batman Beyond Unlimited number five, written by Adam Beechin, illustrated by Norm Bravefogel. Legends of the Dark Knight, Jake. This issue begins with some guy, presumably named Jake, who's a loser. He's kind of, he's leaving a 24-hour convenience store, buying a drink and a newspaper, and kind of mulling over how much his life sucks. And he sees the Batmobile, the flying futuristic Batmobile, fly through the sky. And this prompts him to have an inner monologue flashback. Don't we all of those? And as it turns out, this Jake fellow was actually a member of Derek Powers' elite quiet squad, who were kind of the stormtrooper-looking guys from Batman Beyond animated series, who were essentially like, they were the police in Gotham that specifically worked for him, especially the quiet squad. They were like the guys who did Powers' dirty work. At first, they were kind of just, you know, just threaten people and, you know, rough them up a bit. Nothing too criminal. And, you know, he got paid very well. And, you know, he lived a good life. He was okay. He, he didn't do anything really bad. Until that fateful day when he was ordered by Powers and Mr. Fix to take away the guy from the Batman Beyond pilot who was talking to Warren McGinnis about the secret genetic compound that they were creating from nerve gas. So it does kind of depend if you ever saw that pilot, but essentially it was a deadly, obviously, nerve gas induced compound, which Derek Powers was developing and he didn't want people to know about it. So they drag one guy away and they want to follow up to make sure McGinnis didn't learn anything. So with Mr. Fix, 
Jake and the other soldiers go down there and interrogate him. And when McGinnis says he swear he doesn't know anything, whether he does or not is ambiguous. But Mr. Fix says, kill him. So Jake is the one who pulls the trigger. And like, despite his conscience, actually, he's the one that kills Terry McGinnis' father. So he's given, you know, a week of hazard pay. And he never cashed a check because he felt really guilty about it. And on television, he watched the live funeral and saw the faces of little Matt and Terry's mom and Terry grieve over their dead family member and father. He was also one of the guards that night at the Wayne Powers building when Terry, as Batman, first came on the scene and pretty much beat everyone up. And he said he welcomed the beating because it changed his life. After that situation, he was just an emotional wreck. He didn't pay his bills. He was evicted. He moved down even further into Gotham City slums. And as we reach the end of this flashback, he goes back home to find his house ransacked. And he just loses it at this point. He says, I can't go any lower, so come on, bring it on. Give me everything you've got. And he actually takes out the hoodlums and has them run away. So he's like, okay, here's what I can do. He takes out his old Quiet Squad armor and decides to become a vigilante so he can make something of himself and find a little piece of his soul. And the name on the piece of armor, revealing his full name, is J for Jake. And his full name is Jake Chill. Next, 10,000 Clowns Part 1. All right, Batman Beyond Unlimited number 5, the Batman chapters. This was very good. I was reading it the entire time thinking, okay, well, this is one way of retelling Terry's origin without actually retelling Terry's origin the way we've seen it before. And it was very interesting. But the best part was the reveal at the very end of who this person was. So Joe Chill kills Bruce Wayne's parents... And his nephew, his great nephew, Jake Chill, kills Terry McGinnis's dad. Huh. <laughs> How is Destiny portray this any smoother than that? I gotta say, this was good. I don't have a whole lot to say negative about this because I really didn't have any issues with this. I'm interested to see what they're gonna do with this character because this is clearly somebody that was never in the animated series or was never in the animated series outside of his uniform. But then again, I, nobody said this guy was, you know, walking around in this thing. It's just Adam Beechin taking, you know, elements that already exist within the Batman Beyond universe and enhancing them to, you know, get more interesting when it comes to the history. Of course, I'm the history person. I love the history. And this was, this was it. Linking, you know, not only the Chill family to the McGinnis family, since they're already linked to the Wayne family, but then retelling the origin in a completely different way that we would have never expected. It was great. Norm Breyfogle's art was great. He didn't seem to have any issues with any of the faces. He seemed to spend a little bit more time with the art than we've seen in some of the past issues. Overall, I thought this was great. I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. Yeah, I'm right there with Dustin. This was really, really entertaining and solid. It's a very simple story, but it says a lot. Um, there's not really much to kind of dissect. I, I just I just really like the art and the storytelling. I mean, this is a sort of run-of-the-mill story where you have this lonely guy. But one thing I appreciate is that it doesn't go into extremes. Like, the way he has influence on Batman's life and his experiences with Batman, I suppose somebody could say that it's a bit contrived that the descendant of Joe Chill, or not, <laughs> happened to kill Terry's father. But for some reason, the way it's written, I don't really have any sort of problem with that. In fact, I really like the way it's done. Because the guy is a good, he really is a good guy at heart. He's not misguided. He's, or he is a bit misguided, but he's not, you know, like, like mustache twirlingly evil. He's a normal guy who's made the mistakes. And you sympathize with his life. I like the art. Again, it's appropriately cartoony. And some of the storytelling beats were really inventive. Like when he pulls the trigger that kills Harry's father, 
with his one hand kind of like chilling his eyes a bit as though he almost doesn't want to do it. And there's, there's that inner monologue about a ghost pulling the trigger. And the scene where the crooks break into his house is very reminiscent of the scene where he and the other people break into War McGinnis's apartment. So, I mean, it was, it was really nice. The fight scene at the end was really, really cool. There's one panel where he's holding a wrench or something. I forget what it was. I think it's a table stand. And he gives this, like, really sinister grin. And I thought, oh, man, that looks like Mr. Zaz from back in the old days, just the way Brayful drew that. But it was really, really cool. And, like, I just, I just really enjoyed this issue thoroughly. Four and a half out of five batterings. I also really like this issue. And Donna and Dustin will be happy to know that I liked the art in this issue a lot. Hooray! <laughs> I've actually been reading Nightfall recently. And Good I man. Can, I can really see in that the appeal of Norm Brayfogel in that, you know, is really dynamic and works really well in that story. And I really like the art in it. And it feels like this, even if I hadn't been reading that, it feels like this is kind of a return to form for him. It seems a lot more consistent. Maybe he's just getting back into the spring of drawing Batman. And I think it really works in this issue. And hopefully it'll just continue to get better. The story was also really interesting, really fun. I am not a fan of the chill reference at all. Just because I've said before how I don't like how it seems that things in recent times, just everyone's trying to connect everything to everything. With, you know, Scott Snyder and Carl Higgins especially just interlocking all their stories so tightly and relating things back so tightly to the past and how everything's so convenient. But other than that, I mean, it could have been anyone else. And if you, I look at it like that, then it, it works. It just, I guess it's not really important that it's a chill. I mean, it has some deeper meaning, but it's not so much that it's like a necessity to the story. So that being the case, I can enjoy it a lot more. And I'll give this four out of five batterings. I thought it was really fun. You know, everyone's kind of been saying like. I, I like this issue, and I'm just going to flat out say that I loved this issue. And one of the things that really got to me is I really saw a connection to Batgirl number eight, where you kind of had this backflash to killing joke, and you saw it through the henchman's eyes, but it, this was how it should have been done. You're really looking from the beginning of everything at what the henchman sort of felt and the impact of it all. And you gain sympathy for it, even though he did this heinous crime. And that's awesome writing when, when you can take this bad guy and you kind of feel sorry for him. So I loved it. It certainly had a little bit of a mask of the phantasm feel, you know, certainly given the connection to Terry's father's death. I just remember in Justice League Unlimited where, you know, the phantasm turned Amanda Waller down and said she couldn't do it. So kind of that connection there, I loved that. It was just so well written, really getting to the mind and regret of Jake. And, you know, given the ending, it's it's left ambiguous as to how this guy will turn out. Because, yeah, he has a suit, but is he going to be a villain or is he going to be a Red Hood-esque vigilante? And I think that's sort of up for grabs, and I'm interested to see which way is the penny going to fall. And then, you know, that chilling final page with Jake's bleeding head and the Jay Chill named uniform on the couch. I, I thought it was great. I understand kind of Joe's reservations about connecting everything, but I, I think that sort of like was really a punch and I just thought it was really great. I give this five out of five bats. And I also have to say that if you are a hot girl and Green Lantern shipper that you just need to buy this full issue flat out anyways because you see the origin of Warhawk and he goes through their relationship, this one and then number four of the previous issues. So we just gotta put that plug in there as well. Oh yes. Alright, so Batman Beyond Unlimited number five, the Batman chapters, gets a total of four and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Red Hood and the Outlaws number ten. Starfire? 
On such occasions, I believe it is customary to wear a dead plant. From one extreme to the other. <laughs> Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 10, written by Scott Lobdell, with art by Kenneth Rockefeller and Ario Anindito. The issue opens in Miami, where Jason is on a date with Isabel, the flight attendant from several issues previous. However, their date is interrupted by a huge alien falling from the sky. Jason dons his mask and begins battle with the alien, but bullets simply bounce off the alien's chest. It turns out that the aliens are allies of Starfire, however, who have come to ask her for their help. Despite Tanik's back on Cory, Tamaran is in danger, and only Starfire can save its people. Our heroes, as well as Isabel, are teleported up to Cory's ship, where she resumes her role as captain. It's explained that a race named the Blight attacks Tamaran, but halted their advances to wait for Cory. With this, Cory's ship is attacked by several orbiting enemies. We then cut to another artist and the second story of the issue. An unknown humanoid alien and his three henchmen have in their possession the Life Hammer, which they have just stolen from a police officer, who the alien promptly kills. The henchmen want to bury the body, but the alien has them dump it by the side of the road. The henchmen are unaware that their boss is an alien, but as they drive away, the body they just dumped begins to emit smoke, and essence is born out of her. The henchmen drive through the smoky fog and are turned to bones, but the alien walks up behind Essence with the life hammer pointed at her head. To be continued. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 10. Well, there wasn't a whole lot that happened and really doesn't support my decision to continue to cover this book because it really was really, really non-Batman universe related in this book. The only thing we really had was Red Hood dating what appeared to be the chick from Issue 1, The Flight Attendant, which was kind of interesting that they brought that back 10 issues later, and now she's stuck on this ship up in space. The Essence storyline at the very end, I really thought we were getting away from the Untitled for a while, because we did it so much, and ever since the last time we saw it was the story right before Susie Sue, and since then we really haven't seen it. But then again I thought about it and I realized that it wasn't that long ago that that happened. Scott Lobdell needs to do one of two things very, very soon. He needs to make us either care about Essence in some way, shape, or form, or he needs to find a definitive path to take this book on. And this is why. So since the beginning, we've we've slowly learned about the characters and their histories with the characters, which is great, but it's been a very slow pace. And in between all of that slow bits that we learn every single issue, there's a lot of other things that have to do with single characters individually, which is fine, but the problem is that they market this book as Red Hood and the Outlaws, which is, it's a Red Hood book with him having essentially two sidekicks. Anybody wants to disagree with me, that's fine, but the reality is that that's the way they market the book. It's a Red Hood book with these characters who don't even have their names on the front cover. So why is it that we focus so much on Roy Harper and Starfire, who let us remember they have never had their own series, well, they didn't have their own series before the New 52, and there's plenty of other characters who did have their own series who no longer have their own series. So to spend so much time with Starfire and everything going on with Starfire, and they really haven't spent that much time with Roy Harper, but then this whole Untitled and Essence character, which they have spent a lot of time on and have really gotten not really anywhere with, They need to do something to make this more interesting. Make Red Hood and the outlaws the people they really are. Make them go in and do something to a villain that, you know, the normal heroes wouldn't do. A villain that's established. 
make them the true vigilantes, the murderous vigilantes that they've created them out to be and they've marketed them as. Because until then, all we're doing is we're just getting a variety of, you know, sci-fi, romance, pornography, all mixed into one series. And <laughs> the reality is we're not really going anywhere with this. And, you know, every once in a while we have an issue that I'm like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is good. But those issues are too far few in between to really make this series you know, a must-have, you must get this every single month. And this is just proof that this is the case. So with that, I'm going to give this one and a half out of five batteries. Yeah, hopefully, I think this is the only time I'm really going to say that, like, this issue really sucked. And, like, the main problem with this issue is that there's really no thought put into it at all. I will start with the first page, and I don't want to, but I have to because it, it connects towards everything else. Like, again... There's not a lot of thought put into it. And I can't really, like, wrap my head around this, this whole Corey and Roy thing. Because it's like, okay, if they're sleeping together, then you have to have some sort of, like, inner value between, you know, who you're sleeping with. Starfire is, like, ten times stronger. She doesn't really seem to care about Roy except for reasons for plot. I think she said she finds them funny or whatever. But, like, there's several times in, in the title she said, I don't know why I'm with these people, you know, like, like they're humans. You know, like, she barely remembers the guy's name. I wouldn't care if this is an ongoing thing, but, like, it feels like it's just put in there just because. And, like, that does legitimately bother me. I don't understand it. Besides, like, who politely folds their costume before sex? I don't know. The title, Starlight, Starbright, First Star, Kill the Night, insinuates that there's something going on, but there really isn't. Why is Jason Todd on a date with a flight attendant from, like, issue two when he broke it off with her at the end of that issue or issue three or whatever? Is it because... <laughs> I don't know. I was also say, is it because she puts out on the first date? I guess not. But like, what exactly is the deal with bringing Starfire along? I mean, I think they explain it, but like, it's just, you know, oh, you wouldn't be here if, if you weren't in trouble. And like, they kind of do that thing where they build it up like, you know, this is serious bad trouble. You know, oh, you did quantum leap. That's a big thing. But we don't really get a sense of what's going on. There's just kind of like just Roy telling bad jokes, the flight attendant being brought on for the ride, and basically like kind of describing a lot of things without really letting know what the plot is about. All we know is that, like, Starfire's about to throw down with the space fleet as their Star Trek. And she says, you know, like, you better surrender or I'll blow you up. And, like, who knew Corey was such a badass? I never knew. To be continued. And it's like, nothing happens in this story. Absolutely nothing. The only thing I could say about it is that, like, I am kind of growing on Kenneth Rockefeller as an artist. I've grown to appreciate his style now. But the story was just limp-wristed, and I just, it didn't really make me mad. It's just, like, nothing happened. And it was just, what was there was fluff and filler. One out of five batterings. I'm going to jump to the defense of this book, and not because I liked it, because I didn't. I just feel that we, as a podcast, are kind of being a bit overly harsh on this, because I legitimately don't think it's a bad book. I think it's just not to our taste, especially as reading this from the perspective of Batman fans. Like, I disagree that there's no thought put into it, because I think the fact that we don't really understand it is part of the reason that we kind of just pass it off as this like a bunch of random things but i think looking at the story is you know the character development and there is genuinely some inconsistency in it and things seem to overlap and then like don't make sense with other parts of the universe and their own relationships even within the book kind of vary but i don't think this is a bad book but i just don't really care about it i just don't really care about the characters what happens to them not because they're not written well i just don't think that they're like what i want to read especially as a batman fan i'm not into this the relationship side of it so much i don't really want to read about how 
Arsenal and Corio and kind of had their relationship and then Jason just kind of tags along when he's supposed to be kind of the leader of the group and then Corey's the strongest but she's kind of submissive and like I mean maybe I'm I have got the wrong end of the stick and maybe it is just these characters aren't very well written but I feel that there's obviously a market for this and I just don't think that we're in that market I think it's mismarketed in terms of being released as a bat title I don't think that's right at all especially as Teen Titans isn't maybe the only reason they didn't put it in that kind of young justice group is because not so much the violence in it, just it's, it feels more adult than Teen Titans does or something like that. Having said that, I wonder if the second story in there, I mean, that was definitely bizarre. I wonder if that's because Kenneth Rockefeller is starting to run out of time for his issues. Don saying that he likes him might be disappointed to know that Scott Liddell and Kenneth Rockefeller are moving over to Superman and they're going to be taking over that title. Although I think Don reads Superman anyway. So it's going to be interesting to see who we have on this title after that, assuming Scott Lobdell is still writing it. But like I said, I don't think it's a bad issue, although it was definitely a more Corey central story. And from what we've been promised of it being a Jason orientated book, I think, I guess we kind of had his story arc last time with the whole Court of Hours tie in. Maybe we're going to have like a story arc based around Arsenal next and then, and I keep rotating or I don't know what's going to go on, but I'll just give this two out of five batterings just because like, I don't think it was bad. I just don't really care either way. I just want to say thank you to Dustin, Donovan, and Joe, and I'll get to each of them separate, but they just really touch on sort of three big problems that I sort of have with this. First of all, OMG, the first panel, I don't think enough said about that, but, you know, then Corey comes down wrapped in and then we, of course, have this flight attendant back again, and she's acting like some sort of floozy and a dramatic slash dumb blonde. Uh, I don't know. You know, what is up with the characterizations of females in this book? I feel like this is where this and Catwoman, but at least Catwoman has grown a little bit, but this one still seems to have some issues. Now, let's see, the first... For Joe, Joe said, you know, that I can't really get into, you know, some of these characters. I don't really care about them as much. And I certainly agree with him that I don't feel like this is a Bat title because I guess Jason's only obliquely related to Batman now. I mean, he hates them. Yeah, they had battles, but not so much. But I do have to disagree with Joe only in the, the fact that I think that Jason is, like, the only good thing about this book. It's pulled down by the other characters, and yeah, he has some, like, really awful moments. But in this issue, you can tell that he's grown from the first issue, where he kind of just, like, saw women as, like, a hot piece of ass. Sorry, it's like a tongue twister. So, I mean, it just seems like, wow, you know, I've kind of grown up from this, and now I see, like, what's more important. So I, I do like that he's grown. I do wonder where his helmet came from, you know, when they were first sort of attacked by the blob there. I mean, it just sort of appears on his head. I mean, that's just a detail. I wonder why we have to bring along this blonde on the mission. Is this just for, like, a joke factor? And thanks to Donovan for saying, yeah, what is this issue actually about? I mean, we go through these plots, and, you know, we find out, okay, this is what happens, but what is it? And then my thanks to Dustin goes out to, why are we focusing on Starfire here? 
When yeah, it is Red Hood and the Outlaws. And as I said, Jason, I think he could carry this book and he could have really good stories on his own without these two. But, you know, I, I guess after the story, why don't we have one focusing on an AA meeting with Croc and Roy? I mean, that'd be, I, I'd be all up for that. But then we have this backup about Essence. And really, I mean, when was she more than a tertiary character in this issue? And again, just a point with backup, but pages wasted along with, you know, the two-face that we've got to deal with. I do not like this book. 0.5 out of 5. I mean, basically, Jason's characterization and growth from number one is the only thing that's keeping it afloat for me and keeping me interested. All right, so Red Hood and the Outlaws gets a total of 1 out of 5 batterings. Let's get into our next book, Catwoman number 10. You're the one who's caught Catwoman in the crooked claws of crime. Spare me your morality, hero. Catwoman number 10, and all that is left is for me. Writer Judd Winnick, artist Gia March, colorist Tamu Mori, letters Carlos M. Mangual. The issue opens with Detective Alvarez speaking with Yolanda about Catwoman and the fact that some dirty higher-ups pulled all of her files and copied them off the books. Something smells funny, and it seems that they are handing off the files to somebody else. Elsewhere, the sketch ball from previous issues is trying to entice a male prostitute into his van. But this time, the hooker knows better, and so does his pimp. Unfortunately for him, he gets shot with a train gun and put in the van anyway. Catwoman sees all this and goes after him, kicking in the window. He retaliates by pointing some heavy guns on her, but she holds her own until he starts to put some hookers in crossfire and pulls an assault rifle. Spark drives by in a stolen Lamborghini in the nick of time and tells her to get into the car. She tells him to stop practically as soon as they get going, and she jumps out with Spark racing after her. Spark doesn't understand her fascination with helping the hookers, but she says that no one goes looking for them, and she understands because she was also taken with no one looking for her. Spark answers with a kiss, which Catwoman eagerly accepts. Back with the hollow-eyed male prostitute from earlier, he is told by the sketchball that he is at a house where he will be saved, like others rescued from the filthy streets. He will be given medication to wean him off the poisons he's been taking, given food and water, then he will be taken back to the streets for a fresh start. After he finishes talking with him, he puts on his medical jacket and talks to one of his clean subjects ready to be free. He sells all their viable parts, and all that remains is for him and his dollhouse. Bum, bum, bum. Later at Selena's gymnastic headquarters, which came out of nowhere, Gwen gives multiple heist options to Selena, which are all turned down. Gwen confronts her that if she's not accepting jobs from her, then she's obviously getting something from somewhere else. Gwen is worried that she's working alone, but Catwoman explains she won't be working alone for a long time. Insert innuendo here. At Alvarez's apartment, he comes in talking to Yolanda and telling her that no one will chase Catwoman but himself, as Catwoman herself appears on his countertop. And finally, the dirty cops are talking to someone about Catwoman and the missing money. The unknown person believes that he can lead them to the money, and through Catwoman can also get Batman. And the informant turns out to be none other than... Bark. Next up, I don't remember. Welcome to the dollhouse. We got fun and games. <laughs> Not exactly. All right, Catwoman number 10. Catwoman number 10, this was kind of interesting, but really didn't, in my opinion, propel the entire issue into the 
storyline. Now, given there was some story development that happened in this issue, we see the fact that Spark is willing to betray Catwoman, despite the fact that Catwoman is getting fairly close to this character. We also see more development with Detective Alvarez and now Catwoman as well. The question that I have is when Catwoman says, you know, is she working alone? And she says, no, not for long. Was she referring to Spark or was she referring to Detective Alvarez? And quite honestly, Catwoman's still a burglar. She's still on the wrong side of the law. So why would Detective Alvarez have any inclination of helping her whatsoever other than he's the only cop that doesn't seem to want to kill her? I really felt like this issue didn't have a whole lot going on. I mean, there was, you know... The only thing to me that was going on was the whole dollhouse thing, which I thought it was kind of interesting how they set it up with the whole, there's this guy who kidnaps people and basically turns them into, you know, sells off their organs and then turns them into these dolls for his human-sized dollhouse. But the problem is that this is almost a ripoff of something we've already seen. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we have a character called the Doll Maker who was taking organs and selling them on the black market? Why, Dustin, I believe you're right. And it happened in Detective Comics number one within the New 52, so that was even a year ago. Yeah, so that's the first problem. The second problem, which this is not something that I can hold as high as that point, but isn't it a little odd how we had in Batman the Dark Knight, which I know we haven't talked about, we had someone rolling around in a van kidnapping people, and in this issue we have someone rolling around in a van kidnapping people. Now... I understand that they can't be the same, mostly because the two have nothing to do with each other, and they were written probably around the same time, so it's very doubtful that that was actually planned. But in my mind, it would have made more sense if Editorial might have stepped in and said, hey, wait, why do we have two books with people kidnapping people and doing something to them? But that's me. I'm not DC Editorial, clearly. The art was okay. I mean, there's nothing, like, amazing about his general Gilliam March with his over-cheesecakeness that he does. I don't know. I mean, I like the idea of this dollhouse character because it reminds me of what I wanted the doll maker to be. But at the same time, I feel like this is just a regurgitation of something that we've already seen, and the first one wasn't done very well. So I don't have high hopes for this. Two out of five batterings. I'm kind of in the same camp. I'm a little more positive because I really did like the second half of this issue. It sort of split down in the middle. Like, I'll start with the art. I'm starting to see kind of cracks in Gillian March's template as a technical artist because <laughs> since that, since that god awful cover for Catwoman number zero came out, I've seen how he can either over exaggerate figures to the point of you no know, impossibility or just kind of skimp on the anatomy because it looks, if you kind of take a second look at it, it, it can look really, really bad. Like on the title page where Selena is kicking down the window and the door, that is a very, 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 very badly done Catwoman like. She almost looks like a backwards letter F because, like, her spine is twisting. And I know she's trying to do a roundhouse kick, but her spine is twisting almost over to where her... I'm sorry, I'm a little snobby here, but, like, her center weight is, like, completely off to where she would either topple over. And her legs are far too short. And, like, there's no foreshortening to make it look realistic. It looks like her legs are cut in half. So it, it kind of strikes out for me. On a more nitpicky side, Gillian March's take on Spark isn't really looking like how he was done when Adrian Mello did him. Because I, I got this, this distinct impression that he was an Asian American. And here he almost looks like a Native American, if anything. But like, I mean, if you're going to draw a character of ethnic nationality, then try to keep that nationality consistent. Because I mean, I don't care what he, what he is, but like, if he was first appeared to be drawn like Asian, then make him Asian. If, he, if he's not, then 
don't have first artists make amazing. Similarly, on that scene where he says, you know, are you trying to turn cop? What are you doing? Why do you want to help these people so much? And so he goes, because I was taken and no one helped me and no one came to see me. It's like, I hope I'm not sounding cold when I say this, but like my initial reaction when that dig thing was, I was like, quit crying. <laughs> like, I'm tired of seeing her cry. I'm all for emotion and drama and pathos, but like, I guess the male in me was like, I'm tired of seeing people cry in comics. Get over it. <laughs> and I shouldn't say that because it is a really, really dramatic background she has, but like, I didn't care. <laughs> but I will say that like, the, it picked up for me after the dollhouse scene, which I don't talk about because I didn't, I didn't like it, where Gwen was like, you know, would you stop disobeying me for one second? I thought we were partners. And Selena's like, whatever. And I really like the scene where she gets to drop on Alvarez in his, in his apartment. I thought it was a really nice, well-drawn scene and well-written scene where she says, I understand you've been looking for me. And the ending really surprised me. I didn't think that Spark was going to be like an informant for the dirty cops, let alone a bad guy. So I thought that was a good surprise. And for them to do this so they can get not only Catwoman, but possibly even Batman is a is a nice twist. So I was kind of split down the middle. So I'll give this two and a half out of five batterings. Here we see the major problem with Guillermo's artwork in that we've always said about how he does the eyes wrong and that he puts the whole iris in the center of the eye. So when he draws these doll characters and they intentionally have the iris in the center of the eye to look like dolls, it doesn't look any different to his usual art. <laughs> so I'm kind of looking at it. Are they, are they supposed to be like wide open or is that just are they just all unblinking i don't know i didn't think it was a, a bad issue i thought like i think we kind of expected from the first time we saw spark that he was going to be a bit of a dodgy character i guess he started to kind of win me over a bit with the issues we've seen him in but i definitely wasn't surprised to see him at the end this dollhouse character is i, know, I, I was kind of interested to see, see the male prostitute i just thought that was as subtle or not as really subtle but as just having that in there, just you know, it's a bit different. And mm-hmm. I think I think we said before how Judd Winnick, either intentionally or not, is very diverse in what he does, and that's a nice touch by him. And it was definitely interesting to see that takes something that I wouldn't necessarily expect to see. And it was like I said, interesting seeing it in there. I'm definitely interested by this dollhouse character more so for the premise of it than what's actually going on. And Catwoman's relationship to it, I'm not so sure about that. It's, you know, it's something again that I think we kind of come to expect just how everything ever bad has happened to her and that she's sold us like an idiot. But, you know, having her perhaps more emotionally invested in something, it seems that so far she's been even more stupid than what she's doing, you know, breaking into a police officer's house, running into bullets, you know, just being sloppy with her, tracking and hiding her own tracks. But, Perhaps having her more emotionally invested in something will see more character development and she'll grow, I guess, and be a bit more intelligent in what she does. So I'm hoping for that. But I thought it was an okay show. I'll give it three and a half out of five batterings. Now, throughout this review that I'm about to give, I will give two pop culture references, one which Dustin will not approve of, but it, it makes sense, so hopefully he'll allow it. <laughs> so I, I know that Catwoman, Selena has sort of this, this task that's related to, to these characters that we have going on here, but I've sort of had enough of, like, all this prostitute stuff now. It's just gotten so, I don't know, it, it just really feels like it pulls you, like, down. Like, I feel, like, depressed or something, just, like, coming at it with a negative attitude when we're kind of starting on this, like, really terrible street corner and there's this prostitute with hollow faces, probably from crystal meth. It's just, like, uh, I'm kind of, you know, done with it all. 
definitely, I think, you know, going along with Joe is saying, you know, Callum has a good heart. And, you know, even though she is sort of this, like, anti-hero, she's got a good heart and she's going after this thug. But I, I she doesn't really think through what she's going to do. And can she get somebody to help her out? I mean, I'm sure Batman would accept some sort of reward from her for putting this guy away. <laughs> if you know what we're saying. <laughs> I know, right? But then we do get to learn a little more about Selena, more than her randomly scratching that guy's face back in issue number one, that, you know, she did sort of have this lifestyle, and she was taken, but that's sort of all we learn from now, so just kind of a little bit of a carrot dangled out there, and we will learn some more later. So she feels connected to, you know, the kidnapped children and prostitution, and she wants to do what no one else would do for her. We, of course, have this shifty moment between her and Spark, and really, who didn't see that coming? But we still know next to nothing about him. And does she just kiss men willy-nilly? <laughs> and, of course, he is working with the dirty police. Was there any doubt? I think when he came onto the scene, we all probably thought that something bad was going to happen, as with all new characters. Okay, the creepiness. No, my culture reference is to Lost, so this is the bad one, but just the way that this guy doesn't even have a name, I don't know, but, you know, the sketchball is kind of talking to him, and you see these of people kind of going through the shakes, the withdrawal, and then eating. It just totally reminds me of, like, a Dharma video. You know, those videos that you saw in the different stations and sort of what happens and what everything is like. But this, I actually really liked just this entire section here because it is, it's so macabre and, like, really, it's really scary and creepy just that, hey, they're taking these people off the streets, people that you may not miss, you probably won't miss, and they're cleaning them up, and then he's doing this. And... I don't know if you guys know of this movie. It's called Cabin by the Lake. This is my second pop culture reference. But it had Judd Nelson in it. He was in things like The Breakfast Club. He was one of the Brat Pack. And so what he did, basically, he, like, kidnapped women and killed them. But then he would, he had a lake, and he would string them kind of down in the lake. And he had, like, this sort of set up this, like, little scene going. And, it, you know, their dead bodies would be down at the bottom of the of the lake and these it's it just it's very reminiscent of this it's just very you know it's in the lake so it was very creepy and ugh. so i do wonder where selena got this training room as i you know said in my little plot when will this dirty cop storyline with alvarez finish are Alvarez and Selena working together now? As Dustin, that was one of my questions. Is Selena talking about Alvarez or is she talking about Spark? And does Selena know the truth about Spark? These are sort of all the questions that I came up at the end. I guess, you know, that I care about finding these answers, the issue sort of did a good job. So I will give it 3.5 out of 5 back. All right, so Catwoman number 10 gets a total of 2.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight. Number 10. Hold it right there! Hey! What are you? Stop! What the... No! No spiders! Get them off of me! No! No! Written by Greg Hurwitz, art by David Finch. The issue starts off with someone sewing their lips together with some thread and going down inside of, inside of a basement... And they come across a child, and the child is sprayed by somebody with some gas. Back at Wayne Manor, we see Bruce Wayne with his floozy of the month, uh, which <laughs> appears to be a Ukrainian pianist who is playing a variety of different operas at, you know, using the piano. 
Um, they exchange some words back and forth, and essentially Alfred comes and says, Bruce, something's going on, they found another girl, and the female decides that she knows exactly what's coming, and she says, oh, I have to go, blah, blah, blah. We cut to the little girl who we saw being gassed in the beginning of the issue. She's wandering down the street. The police are following her and the person who dropped her off in the city. The car is headed straight towards a maternity ward, and right before it happens, Batman pops in, kicks the guy straight out of the, the passenger side door window, and stops the car from going into the maternity ward. Batman then proceeds to ask him to interrogate him, only to really get no reply as to who he is working for other than he was just paid to drop this girl off. Back at GCPD headquarters, Gordon and Batman are talking back and forth. As it turns out, Gordon is starting to have some issues with confronting things happening in Gotham City as he feels as if he has kind of ignored so many things for too long just because it's the way of the city. In protective services, Batman goes to find the girl, Claire, and tries to talk to her. She doesn't talk, but Batman lets a little of emotion out and hands her his hand to hold as a sign of care. Back at the Batcave, Batman is looking at the Batcomputer trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Damien approaches him and tries to reconcile with him for all the various things that have happened, to which he only is there to find out that Bruce isn't really paying attention and storms off. Back with James Gordon, he's going to his house, and as he turns on the shower to get in the shower, some gas pours out of the uh, shower head, and it appears to be some fear toxin. He starts having a lot of different hallucinations, including Barbara being shot and James Jr. being strapped up in a straitjacket. They are both telling him that they don't understand why he could not protect them, and they were sorry for blemishing his life. Back at some place across Gotham, the Ukrainian floozy is trying to play the piano when she screws up multiple times, and Bruce Wayne shows up dressed and says, are you ready to go? She proceeds to basically tell him off for taking off all the time, and she doesn't understand why He's constantly doesn't have anything to do with the daily events, but is all about the grand openings and the black tie events. Back across Gotham, we see the Scarecrow pop out of somewhere, and he proceeds to knock the homeless man or kill the homeless man in front of James Gordon's house out, and the Scarecrow proceeds to say to Gordon, as Gordon lies on the ground breathing from his fears, the Scarecrow says, There, there, little puppet. Save your strength. We're just getting started. Next, The Dark Knight Unleashed. Alright, Batman The Dark Knight number 10. This was an interesting issue. I've got to say, number one, thank the Lord that we have a worthwhile story in this. I said it earlier when we were talking about comic news, I really enjoyed Batman The Dark Knight number 10. Um, I wouldn't say it was absolutely amazing and it didn't have its flaws, but this is definitely a lot, a lot of steps higher than what we've seen in recent months with Paul Jenkins and David Finch's co-collaboration on the plot. It's good to know that despite Greg Hurwitz saying he's giving David Finch some elbow room, that for the most part it doesn't seem like David Finch has a lot going on other than just saying maybe how the pages are laid out and things like that. This was a story that I almost felt as if I was reading Detective Comics when Detective Comics was good before Tony Daniel was doing it. As far as, you know, obviously a detective story that Batman's going to have to solve. And then I thought to myself, wait, why is this happening in Batman the Dark Knight? Why didn't they just put Greg Hurwitz on Detective Comics and move David Finch there? Because that would have made a ton of sense since the series has already saluted itself in the top ten comics every single month. Why not take superstar David Finch and throw him into Detective Comics? 
But then I thought, well, this just means that we have another story that, you know, can be told in some other title besides Detective Comics. I know that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but my point is, this was good. Scarecrow, I'm not real sure about the, you know, let's thread my lips together so I actually look like a Scarecrow part, but I will leave room for that, because as of right now, I don't know exactly how to take that, because we don't know everything there is to know about Scarecrow. But this is definitely one crazy guy who has a very messed up mind, and that's what the Scarecrow should be, not some timid man who, you know, inflicts fear just because he had so many fears when he was a boy which we've seen so many times before. So again, Greg Hurwitz, in my opinion, knocks it out of the park with another reinvention of a villain. Did it with Penguin, even if it was too, too many issues in that series, Penguin, Pain and Prejudice. He knocked it out of the park then, and he's knocked it out of the park this time with Scarecrow, given this is the first issue. That being said, great issue, two for two for Greg Hurwitz. I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. <laughs> I'm going to uh, quote Joe the Legend Jinx and say, I actually like this issue because it was very, very, very solid. It was just like, you know, like this is sort of like what you expect from a Batman story in terms of a supervillain plot. And it was paced very well. And, you know, it was an intriguing idea. And I'm interested to see what happens next. Just to start off with like the scarecrow gassing a little girl. That's actually a really cool idea. It makes him look really, really creepy without being overtly excessive. Although the lip thing, I would say right now, like the lip sewing thing, I can buy Jonathan Crane doing it to himself because he's nuts. But how does he talk? Because he does talk at the end. How does a person talk like that? But whatever. I don't have much of a problem with the Ukrainian lady just like like all of a sudden being in the title. Although I will say that like one of the biggest scraps I do have with this issue is that like it feels like it's picking up from a storyline that's already been going on and we're in the middle of it without much explanation. Like the Ukrainian woman who we don't even have a name from, which shows how useless she is, hilariously so. Like, it's almost like they've been going out for months or whatever, but we have, we're just seeing her for the first time. And the same thing goes in hand hand with Damien. Like, I tried to connect that to that big Batman and Robin issue, but it doesn't really fit with like what went on in issue eight of that series. So like, I was wondering like what he was talking about when he said, I was trying to be more angry and thought you noticed or whatever. It felt, I see where Hurwitz was going from, but it felt way, way too disconnected because do the other writers just not read that title to figure out how to write Damien? Do they just like do whatever they care about? But that's neither here nor there. I enjoyed the opening sequence with Batman knocking the guy out of the car. It was a little like how to get to the car in time, whatever. But that's the point where you say it's a comic book. Don't really worry about the physicality of it. I love the scene with Batman and the little girl because it's it's so rare that people remember that Batman does have emotions. And it makes sense for his character to be sympathetic towards children, especially children with, you know, dealing with traumatic experiences. And it reminded me a lot of Justice League Unlimited epilogue where Batman held Ace's hand from the Royal Flush Gang when she was about to die. It was a lot like that. And I, I just really enjoyed seeing Batman showing this kind of side of him in, in a modern-day comic book. Because I feel it really is rare. I like the scene with uh, Gordon and the fear gas. I question Finch's artwork in terms of the bullet hole wounding Barbara Gordon. Because... It just looks. It just looks like it was put like, a little too low. It really. I'm not being serious. No, 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 no. That's actually the correct spot. I thought she was shot like in the belly button or the gut or something. Yeah, but the thing is, if she was paralyzed from the waist down, she would have been shot from the waist down because it would have had a hit someplace in her spine, below the waist. So legitimately, it's it's possible that that could be where she got shot. I know where you're going with this, but legitimately, it could be. That she was shot there. Yeah, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just, I'm just trying to say. I know. I'm too lazy to go actually check. <laughs> but I was just, that was just a concern of mine. I liked how he drew Barbara and Joe Jr. I thought the art was pretty generally decent. It, Bruce Wayne did look kind of weird in some places, but I thought 
most part, he looked pretty good. And I liked how the issue ended where it's like, you know, we're just getting started. This is a very, very solid Batman comic. And I thought it hit all the right places. Four out of five Batarangs. I'm not sure how I feel about this issue. On one hand, I really wanted to like it because I like Greg Hurwitz. I like what he's done and I want this title to have more of a direction and be a good title because obviously if I'm reading it, I want it to be good. On the other hand, I'm not sure if it was tainted a bit by David Finch's artwork and just because of what we expect from him and the title or I think it might also link back to what Don said about how it kind of starts as if it's been going on. And I think this felt, especially the first page, as if it was just Greg Hurwitz just kind of sticking his fingers up at the last run and going like, this is what the Dark Knight should be because like the first dialogue from this Ukrainian lover was just a rabble of kind of like, I mean, I didn't understand half of what she was saying because it was all cultural and intelligent and it made me feel a bit thick, but <laughs> it kind of was almost as if it was saying like, this can be an intelligent title. It doesn't need to be, you know, just all about pushing bad guys off cliffs and you know having this brand new relationship that he's in with no mention to Jai White and just you know kind of as if it's just that never existed that whole storyline and it really just feels as if he's kind of just like covered it up pushed it in the corner and like kind of gone this is what the Dark Knight is now so I did like it I just feel that I'm not sure if it was over the top or I don't it's hard to explain how I feel about this I think there's just, there's still elements, and I think it's kind of partly because David Finch, his artwork kind of exaggerates everything. So you have this kind of, some of it's very deep dialogue, I guess, and it has this kind of meaning. And then it's kind of like either taken, like the sewing up the lips and the blood everywhere and everything. It's like, it kind of takes what could be really serious and then kind of like ramps it up to 11 and it's like kind of almost parodies it. I guess it just kind of makes it a bit silly. Artwork does, yeah. I don't know it's definitely an interesting storyline. I like where it's going. I like the characters in it, and I'm looking forward to this. Like, I'm definitely looking forward to the next issue, seeing where it goes. It might just be a disconnect, maybe, or just not knowing what this was going to be, and then having this issue kind of, you know, like just be so different from what it was, but then still being kind of familiar because of the artworks and not knowing what to expect from it. So. I did like it. I think it's going to take a few issues for me to settle into it, though, so I'll give it three and a half out of five batterings. Now, the previous review, Dustin Road connected the dollmaker with this guy at the dollhouse, and, you know, the, the prostitutes being picked up by the little girls, and I sort of also saw with this issue a connection between this and Batwoman, because both of them, we had sort of children being kidnapped. And if you remember, the weeping woman was only sort of drowning <laughs> and taking these children. So I, I saw, I guess there's a connection across the board with all of the Batman books. So there's another one to throw in. Now, the cover, I talked about a cover last episode. I, I thought it's just a scary cover. And you're not really sure what it's about. Like, maybe you can think, oh, it's Scarecrow. But I mean, Batman, his lips are bleeding. They're so shut. You're just like, wait, what is this? But I, I think it was great. And it's a really creepy opening as well. So the cover starts it off. The opening really grabs you. And few comic books, I think, are able to do that really grab you with the first few pages. And that's what you have to do is grab the reader right away in order to get them invested in reading the rest of it. And this issue does that. 
okay, who the devil is this woman now? <laughs> They've obviously been <laughs> together for a, a little while. I kept thinking that, wait, is Charlotte, was Charlotte in this comic? No, she isn't a detective, but we did have Jay, or Jai, but Jay in, in this one, it is like, I can't remember if, well, I couldn't tell if Dustin was calling her a floozy in his rundown. He said something. I don't know. I but, said floozy. Yep, floozy. Okay. So, yeah, because you kind of wonder, like, well, it's basically like Corey at a piano with the whole sheet thing. But it seems like they've known each other or been together for a little while because she knows the whole routine when it's time for Bruce to go, which I think that was different. I don't think I've ever seen that with a woman before. She also has a very different feel about her, which is sort of hard to describe. But, I mean, could this be the last woman? Who knows? She's not just some brainless girl, though, off the street. I mean, she does have class, and, you know, she does really take it to Bruce. She doesn't sort of let him walk all over her and, and sort of lays it down for him. There are some really great moments with this comic. I, I love the scene with the little girl where Batman just sits with her. I love when Gordon gets blasted with the fear toxin and the visages of, of Bat and James Jr. that attack him. It was well written, it was well drawn, and it was disturbing. It does the point. Loved it. I also don't really understand Jim. I think it's in this comic in particular, but it really seemed to be bringing him down in this book. I can't remember if it was this book or another one that he signed up with a shrink, but it just seems like they're bringing him down to be a weak character, and a weak character he's not. He just has this whiny moment up on the GCPD roof, and really whiny is the only way I can describe it, and now he sort of can see any sort of connection to James Jr. now. So it's just sort of this, like, woe is me attitude, and I just think that's my main problem here is that that is not James Gordon. He is, like, a really a strong guy. He's got such a backbone and really adds a lot to the Batman books and the Batman character. The scene with Robin was interesting, and I'm wondering whether Robin is going to be the next child villain of this particular scarecrow. And it was sort of heartbreaking as well, just that, you know, he was really putting himself out there and saying, yeah, I, I want to change, going along with Batman and Robin number eight, I guess, right before Cordiel's. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really put himself out there, and then Batman didn't listen. So that was a little kind of touching. But I think, I mean, The Dark Knight, we've had ups and downs with this, but this is probably by far one of the best issues that have come out. Great job, just like I said with that news, that interview, that this guy puts his money where his mouth is. He doesn't just say, I'm going to switch it up. He really does, and it comes through. So fortify that. All right, so Batman the Dark Knight number 10 gets a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Batwoman number 10. Why don't you just go talk to her? Who, me? Talk to her? <laughs> no way. Yeah, you'd probably be wasting your time anyway. I hear she's, you know, Brazilian. Ha ha. Batwoman number 10, co-written by W. Hayden Blackman and J.H. Williams III, with art by Trevor McCarthy. Batwoman's story, now. Soon is still kissing Batwoman, but Kate manages to push her off. With this, Soon walks over to the still-living Falcon and stabs him through the chest. Maggie's story, 18 hours ago. Maggie's at a park with Commissioner Gordon and the GCPD, where they found one of the missing children. Maggie's aware that her job is at stake because of the lack of success in her case. Instead of reassurance, however, Gordon says, imagine they're your children, and then go look for them. With this, Maggie walks off and makes a phone call to someone named Pixie. Jacob's story, 35 hours ago. Still in the hospital, Jacob is telling an unconscious bet about the time he put down the family cat and the events that led up to him realising that he secretly loved Beth more than Kate. Chase's story, two hours ago. Chase, soon Batwoman and the D.E.O., 
of fighting Killer Croc in the sewers when he blows up the tunnel, killing all the DEO soldiers before fleeing down a passage towards Falcon's lair. Batwoman and Soon follow after him whilst Chase cares for the lone, heavily injured survivor of the blast. Kate story, 28 hours ago. As a Batwoman, Kate sees Bet and her father in the hospital through the window in her room. Mara's story, one week ago. We finally see the ritual in which Killer Croc is mutated into the ten-eyed, ten-foot walking crocodile simply by eating cancerous rats and the blood of a virgin. Batwoman's story, now. Soon has killed Falcon, but wants to make sure he remains that way. Batwoman attempts to stop her, but in retaliation, soon transforms into her brother, Marrow. Alright, Batwoman number 10. Again, we have Trevor McCarthy's art. He, again, did a great job with the art, bringing it really up to par with what it should be for this book because of J.H. Williams' art. He did a very good job of bringing it up to par with that. As far as the story goes, okay, you know, I might have said, no, I know I did, that I like the idea of having six different characters' stories in every single issue. But I think at this point I'm getting tired of it. I mean, the thing is, it was a great idea. But the problem is that, as I believe I said last time we reviewed the last issue, Batwoman number 9, the problem is that there's not a whole lot happening. And initially, when it, when they were telling the story like this, it seemed as if all of the stories were actually playing into each other and just giving like a different point of view from the different characters so it was a complete story. Now, we're pretty much having every single character in different aspects or different time frames or different areas of Gotham, and they're telling the story, which would be fine, but what is the point of telling everybody, hey, this is this person's story, this is this person's story, and by the way, this isn't happening the same time this is happening, this is happening at a different time compared to this time. I know I'm probably sounding like a hypocrite because, you know, it was probably like two, three episodes ago that I was sitting there going on and on about how I thought it was a great idea, this the six-person story art, or the six-person story point of view thing. But I, I'm just, I'm tired of it. I really am. And quite honestly, I believe that J.H. Williams is coming back next month. I could be wrong. Uh, maybe he's coming back on 12. It's either 11 or 12, but I know he's coming back. And I can't imagine them continuing to do this point-of-view story that they continue to do. Nothing really seems like it's happening. Like, it seems just like yesterday that Betty was put in the hospital, and Kate, in, in turn, had to team up with the DEO to take down Marrow and team up with this Soon character. What else has happened? I mean, there's not a whole lot that's happened. And we're talking, Amy Reader's done one issue, Trevor McCarthy's done an issue, and now another issue. So we're three issues later, and what really has happened, besides all the stuff that happened in the first, like, six issues? So, I mean, props to McCarthy for, again, stepping up his game for the book. And, you know, for the most part, the story was okay, but like I said, we're just not really seeing enough progression for a series like this. I mean, quite honestly, this is supposed to be one of the top books because of the art and because of the decisions that DC's letting J.H. Williams do as far as, you know, planning everything out so far in advance so that they can get the art done and schedule the art with enough time, you know, the fact that it doesn't have to be tied into the tie-ins that aren't real tie-ins or crossovers that aren't real crossovers because they're planning so far in advance. I expect more from this, and quite honestly, as good as the art is when J.H. Williams is doing it, it's not as good when he's not doing it, and the book story is not progressing fast enough where we are almost 12 issues in and really you can list the main plot points that have happened on one hand that's not a good thing so 
overall, I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. Yeah, I'm with Dustin in that, like, I don't think it's necessarily bad, but, like, what could be said bad about it is that, like, I don't really care what's going on. And this might be because of my attention span, because I admit that, like, I do have kind of a child's, like, attention span, but I can, I can read a complicated story. I'm not saying it's actually even that complicated. It's just that, like, I don't think it's that really interestingly told. I mean, the kids at the last issue was sort of like a, a false cliffhanger, which I suppose is, is true for the characters. It's fine, but, like, I don't like kind of cheap plays like that where, like, a cliffhanger is resolved immediately in the first page of the next issue. But jumping around with the different perspective things, you can do that. I mean, I've, I've seen it done since, like, since Animorphs, to be honest. But, like, this never really worked for me. I think that this jumping around story is the little snippets, too little is being told, I suppose, to really merit that. Like, I don't know. Like, it was a nice scene to see Batwoman checking on Betty and her father, but, like... Scenes like with her father, like saying I may have liked the Beth more and other stuff. It feels like we're kind of going for requisite character beats as opposed to plot progression. And maybe it's part of the government being involved in this, but I really don't give a rat's ass about this. And I'm sorry because I feel like I'm coming down, I am coming down harder on this than I really do, but like, I don't really listen to much emotion from it. I appreciate that we have an explanation for like Croc looks the way he does and that his initial form looked a lot more like Killer Croc, but like, that's really all I can say about it. And even like at the end where Morrow is sort of like in his male form, his face looks very, very feminine. So like I'm, uh, do we have a transgender thing going on? I'm not sure, but like I don't really care enough to find out. So I mean, I guess it's, it's sort of like what Joe was saying about Red Hand the Outlaw is that like this just might not be a book for me to really read from month to month. So I'll give it two out of five better ranks. I feel like I've held out the longest on this story arc, but in this issue, I still like what's going on. I still like the way the story's put together and the format of the issue. I just feel that it's an issue too many, and I think the next one is going to be the same. So I really do like this kind of, you know, having jumping around different characters, different times. I'm able to follow it, and I like piecing it together myself. I, I like that aspect of it. I just feel that it's been going on a bit too long, and that's why it may feel like it's been dragged on too much. Because the main story is basically the bookend. It's the beginning and end of the issue. And, you know, that's what's going on in the present. That's the, the battle between, it started out between Batwoman and Hook, and then it went on to Falcon and his army, and, and now this thing was soon slash Marrow. And then the rest of the issue is timeline leading up to what that's going on, and then a lot of character development, especially with Jacob within that, Jacob's relationship to Batwoman, his children, and Bat. And I enjoy that, but I feel that has been going on a bit too long now. And I'm definitely looking forward to getting on to the next story arc. I'm looking forward to having J.H. Williams back on the book as an artist. I agree that Trevor McCarthy's definitely stepped up his game for his work on this book, and I really appreciate that. I do think it's really great artwork, especially in the the chase segment I thought was really nice. I wonder who this pixie character is. It seemed to follow on after Gordon said mentioned children, so I'm not sure if she has a child or if it's another girlfriend or something similar. Pre-Flashpoint um, pre, pre she did. She has a thicker daughter. Oh, so it might be a reference to that. This Marrow slash Soon thing, I think I was expecting it from the beginning of the issue just because of Valkyon saying Marrow before he was stabbed by her slash him. So that that's definitely interesting, and we'll probably see more of that in the next issue. I did enjoy it, and I don't think it's dropped in quality or anything. I just feel like it's going on a bit too long now. So I'll give this three and a half batterings, but... I want to give it more. I just I'm getting a bit bored of it now. Same as a lot of the Night of Owls stuff. It's it was good, very good. It's just when you get too much of it, it's it starts to drag and get a bit boring. 
I would like to say that I think Jill and I at least are tied in this respect that I think we both held out equally as long for this particular story. And while at the beginning of all this, two days later, two weeks later, five hours earlier, that sort of thing uh, was rough, I certainly, like, I started to follow. But I wholeheartedly agree, you know, everyone, I think, across the board said this, that not a lot has happened, <laughs> actually, once you think about it. I mean, it seems like a lot has happened, but it, they're so minute, I think, in the details that they're giving each of these little time pieces that they don't really add up to a lot. Maggie has a daughter. That blew my mind. Uh, I, I guess I didn't know that about that particular character. I liked knowing or finding out how Crocs came to be because that was brought up either the previous issue or two issues ago, just this transformation, and everyone's like, what happened to him? But nothing was revealed, and so now we sort of find out. Of course, it's a very macabre way, but that's the way that woman is. I didn't really understand what happened at the end with him. Did he just sort of explode? <laughs> I, I guess. No, there were bombs strapped to the pipes above him, so I guess he detonated them. Okay. So he could potentially still be alive. I mean, because he's a sponsor of Roy. So if he's gone, then Roy is just going to fall off that ship. And, uh... <laughs> okay. I love the page with Kate checking in on Beth, just sort of standing out the window. And, you know, that's really my favorite scene, I think, of the whole issue. We've learned so much about Beth, about Kate, and the general, and, and it's all through the general's dialogue, and it's just been really revealing and emotional, and that was my favorite part here, and generally, I think those are almost the best composed of all of the sections uh, of these past few issues. I would like to know about these birthmarks on Morrow's face. They continue, if, if you, I mean, this is like a detail, but they continue to shift from the right side to the left side. And, you know, I wondered what that was about. But, Trixie, Trixie. So then in the end, you actually realize that it's not a design glitch. Because I always pick those out, you know, in movies. You're like, hey, there was a cup there, but the cup is not there anymore. I sort of pick up on those things. So it wasn't a design glitch, but it was actually a way to tell the brother from the sister. And, of course, shock upon shock, they're actually the same person. Like Donovan, yeah, I wonder what's going on there. If it's, you know, well, yeah, what gender is the he, she? <laughs> it was interesting, slash disturbing to see the transformation of Croc, but I'm always found out about it, which I said before. And, you know, it wasn't the most compelling issue aside from the hospital scene, but there is a pretty good cliffhanger going. But, yeah, not a lot has happened. But I will agree with Jill on the score, 3.5 out of 5 bats. All right, so Batwoman number 10 gets a total of... Three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next title, Birds of Prey number 10. Sorry, my vines have a crush on you. Birds of Prey number 10, Heat Seeker. Writer, Dwayne Swarzynski. Artist, Travel Foreman. And colorist, Gabe Altaib. Upper Amazon Basin, Colombia, where the birds are aboard a helicopter about to be dropped off with a frozen ivy in a box. The pilot, Layden, hits on Starling in the cockpit. Guess that's why they call it a cockpit. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, really? Really? And, <laughs> and the remaining team members are in the cargo bay discussing Ivy's directions when Katana spies a heat missile coming towards them. A scream, an explosion, and bodies falling at 9.8 meters per second squared later, the team pick themselves off the limbs of trees and stand on the forest floor. Think about the heat seeking missile, the pilot, and Ivy stuck in a box. 
Katana and Starling go off to find the pilot, while Batgirl and Dinah struggle to open Idy's box. Two days ago, Batman finally pops in on the bird shortly after they put Henry Pollard on ice in the meatpacking train. Batman does not give them praise. Rather, he critiques Canary, her methods, and her choice of teammates. Batgirl tries to play both sides and tells Canary to let it go because Batman has had a rough couple of days. Back in the present, Katana and Starling find Layden and pull him out of the copter. Starling then asks Katana to cut open the side of the copter, and 100 gallons of pure liquid cocaine are revealed. Katana is upset that Starling had the team riding with the drug dealer, but what else are you going to do when you don't have Delta's five miles? Starling plans on lighting the coke so that the heat-seeking missiles hit the wreck instead of them when a green hand touches Starling. Elsewhere, it's Swamp Thing, it's a crossover, guys. Elsewhere, Batgirl and Dinah finally get the case open and try to avoid the bad stench while getting Ivy out when Batgirl sees green limbs reaching for Dinah. A giant plant creature goes for the two birds. Katana lights the coke and the copter goes up, attracting the missile. Starling, Katana, and Leyland run while avoiding slash hack slashing mini veggie people. Another missile hits. Donna and Batgirl carry Ivy while avoiding veggie people. And the team is reunited at a cliff edge, but it doesn't feel so good. Did you get that reference there? Because there is no bridge across. There is shelter across the gap, and Don is optimistic that they can reach it when she thinks back to Kurt three years ago, and Kurt telling her that she can control it, whatever it is. The birds hold off the veggie people, and Canary grabs the rope bridge and leaps off of the cliff, deciding that she can control it. Flashback to before the copter crash, we see that Dinah targets the missile with her canary cry through a porthole window and crushes the missile. Back in the present, Canary resurfaces and actually flies across the gap, using her canary cry to fight gravity and sets the bridge in place. The birds make their way across, and Starling sets off C4 to blow the veggie people sky high and attracts another missile. <sighs> At the other side of the gap, the last shred of Ivy's leafy self falls. Whoa! And finally awake, she tells Canary she knows all about the veggie people, and she will explain everything inside the shelter. Please note the sinister look. Next up, Twisted from the Inside. All right, Birds of Prey number 10. This was an interesting issue. This was really just the progression of what we saw at the end of Night of Owls moving into the Amazon in my mind, it was kind of like a transitionary issue to bring us from everything that was happening in Gotham to whatever we're going to be dealing with in the Amazon for the foreseeable future. But it also does a great job of linking the green to the rest of the DC Universe with Ivy. Now, if you don't read anything else related to any other DC books besides the Batman books, it's understandable that you don't know what this is, but... What it actually is, is the green is this being that is everything having to do with plants. So Swamp Thing deals with the green, while animals, on the other hand, have to do with the red. So Animal Man, Beast Boy, they all have to do with the red. It's an interesting thing. You don't really need to know a whole lot about it. It's just interesting to point out that, again, they're doing this cross-pollination with things across the DC Universe more so than just, hey, look, Superman's in Metropolis the same time so-and-so's in Metropolis. There's more to it, which in my mind, and what that translates to is, they're putting thought into what they're doing. And it doesn't matter if the editorial teams are completely different, they're still putting some thought into trying to add cohesion to the entire DC Universe. Okay, so the art by Travel Foreman, I have to say, I enjoy the art by Travel Foreman. I think it's good. I think it's going to be too scratchy for some people, but I'm finding some joy in it. 
the story, like I said, transitional. We're getting somewhere, we're leading to something, but we're not there yet. We're not to the main story that Swarzynski is trying to tell. We're getting to where he wants to go, but we're not there yet. Honestly, I feel as if we've been moving for a while and we haven't actually gotten to the thing that he needs to tell, which is the history of Dinah and why she killed her husband or supposedly killed her husband or whatever it is. You know, we need to get to that. And it seems like we're moving towards that at a slow pace, but we are moving towards it. But the difference between this and some of the other books that I've referenced these these uh, time things are is that this actually has things happening along the way. Night of Owls was a great thing to happen in the middle of it, and the way he interacted with the fact that, okay, Night of Owls happened, and even in, in this issue they address it, they say, well, Night of Owls happened, but we were just thrown into it. Well, that's exactly what happened. Probably to, you know, Swarzynski, well, I'm sure it wasn't he wasn't thrown into it, but it's like throwing a wrench into the plan, but at the same time, it makes sense, because really, why would the Birds of Prey have been involved knowing that they have little to nothing to do with Gotham City and the actual hero community, since they all are, in some way, shape, or form, outlaws? Wait, what's that? Maybe we should do a crossover with Red Hood and the Outlaws and Birds of Prey? I didn't say that. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. Eh, that's okay. I mean, it was a very much a transitionary issue. Personally, I'm kind of... I'm kind of still waiting for, like, the plots in the last few issues before Night of Owls to pop up again. Like, the whole, we cut off Choke's head, and it wasn't really Choke. And I will tell you the secret of my husband later. Because like, it feels like every single issue is, like, a, a totally new story from the last one. This, not so much, because Poison Ivy, it does continue from Night of Owls. But I'm still kind of expecting, like, what they're leading up to. And it feels like it's kind of, like, taking detours. Every month there's a new detour. And maybe it's on me, maybe it's on my expectations, but... It's like, ah, and this one, I, I mean, I thought, I thought it was okay. I thought it was decent. <laughs> I'm like, Justin, I didn't like the art and I know he knows this, but I mean, I, I'm not going to dwell on it. I mean, it, it didn't really, it didn't ruin the issue for me, but it does kind of impact my enjoyment and like my investment. I mean, it, it is a style. I'm not, I'm not going to dwell on it. It's just not my thing. This really stress, scratchy style. And it's not like that, but like the characters look ugly more times than not, but that's, that is a form of style. I mean, I'm not saying like he's a bad artist, but he does tend to draw ugly looking people. I, I think he just goes for a really realistic, realistic, uncompromising look. And that's absolutely fine as an artist. I just don't really care for it all that much. The scene where Black Canary kind of flies over using her canary cry, at first I called BS, but then I was like, oh wait, there's a Marvel character, Banshee, who does that. So I was like, okay, I suppose this does work. But it's still, it's still odd seeing her do that, but I'm not going to make too much big of a deal out of it. And those are my thoughts. Three out of five better ranks. I... Also, like this issue a lot. I do really like the art. I like Travel Foreman. When I first saw that, using the Canary Cry as a propelling system, I guess I called copyright, not <laughs> BS, because I have seen X-Men First Class, and I've seen that scene with, I guess it was Banshee. So yeah, I've seen that, and I thought, shame on you, you can do better than this. But <laughs> nevertheless... <laughs> It's still an interesting concept, and that might be explored more in the future of the book. I definitely like the ties to the green and just making it a the whole DC universe more connected. I'm not exactly sure if what's going on in this jungle, this epicenter of the green, if it's got anything to do with what's going on in Swamp Thing and Animal Man with the rot storyline, just because those creatures that attack them, we haven't actually really seen anything like that in 
Swamp Thing or Animal Man, where is the rot seems to inhabit creatures and animals and corpses more so than plants. So I'm not sure if that was connected or if it was just the green defending itself there. But it was still interesting to see. And again, having that connection, I enjoy Poison Ivy as a character and having her as a, admittedly not uh, out and out, but definitely uh, definitely on the side of good in this. And it's understandable that Batman would have questions about it and that all the characters do, but I enjoy seeing her in this role. And I'm looking forward to this arc, you know, based around her and seeing how she fits into the Birds of Prey. So. Like Dustin was saying, it's a bit of a transitional issue, but definitely one that I enjoyed, and I'm looking forward to what it's transitioned to. So three and a half out of five veterans. I guess I can see where you guys are getting the transitional issue thing, but I actually don't see it that way. I feel like the way Sardinsky writes is always with forward momentum, but it's just that at some point he has more than one like little plot thread kind of dangling out there and and they sometimes tie back and i think he he certainly has connections to past storylines he's trying to keep a thread open to other things but i i don't know if i see this as a transition because he definitely wanted to flesh out ivy as he said in the interview with me and i think we're going to get to that and we're going to get to perhaps through this Die was that we saw several issues ago. I think that may have been either two or three, if you remember him giving the briefcase to her. I have a lot to say about this, but I will save many of my remarks. Well, here we are all together again on an airplane ride to help Ivy. You know, I again thought that we were being thrown into a situation that had some history, but, you know, happened in off-panel land, which I despise, especially when I saw the pilot touching Starling and calling her babe. I thought, wait, what is going on? But but I'm glad that it was just his flirtatious manner, which Ab, of course, did not appreciate. So a couple questions. When did this whole conversation with Ivy happen, you know, that she made this sort of pact with her? Yes, Dinah and Ivy were in communication before she joined the team, but then probably would not be the time to, I mean, she didn't sign up, so why would they make some sort of pact? And then later on, their minds were on choke, so then when it be, you know, let's stop the fighting, hey, can we make a pact? I just wonder when this kind of all went down. And also, how could Ivy have foreseen these sorts of circumstances actually happening? Why would she even bring it up that, hey, if anything happens to me, if I ever become frozen, you need to bring me here. I mean, when is she ever going to, when would you think that you were going to be frozen? I don't know. Again, we're connecting to Dinah's dead husband. Here's my thread that goes backwards. In an inconvenient time, though, you know, if only to keep this connection running with that. And who knows when we're going to have that particular storyline. I do at least like the fact that there's a connection made to the Night of Owls because I think we've had some issues. Issue number seven, it ended with Choke. But, hey, the big question, who is Choke? And, wait, was Trevor Cahill Choke or was he not? Then eight, we had this ragtag bunch of guys, and it was a connection to Dinah's murder. There's no connection to number seven. Then we had Night of the Owls. There was a bit of a connection to Dana's husband, but no connection to the group, the infiltrators. And then now we have this one. So at least we're connecting back to Night of the Owls. So for instance, he sort of has rectified some of that weakness that we had seen there. Now, the interaction with Batman and the birds is strained, to say the least. But I really can't imagine him giving such a back and forth with a team like this. I mean, he and Starling are sort of having this, like, this back and forth together, like, mouthing off. I thought, wait, this doesn't seem right. 
And at one point, he talks to Dinah as if he approves of her, but not her choice of teammates. But then he turns around and, and attacks her. To be honest, you know, Batgirl really should have been the liaison here and stayed with the Talon while the birds skedaddled. But I guess she'll just ride the fence like Superman does question where all these missiles from you know am i the only one that thinks that they're just an annoying plot device that distracts from the main story they just kept coming there are at least four of them another question dinah's canary crime is it a latent metahuman ability meaning you know did it come at a late time she wasn't born with it is that why her husband is coaching her i mean kurt is dead Dinah murdered him, apparently, but he was like a Professor X with her. And this is kind of my theme here is like a very X-Men feel of an issue. I mean, how long are we going to see these brief snapshots of Kurt and Dinah's relationship before more is revealed? And why is he coaching her? I just wonder about that. But all of a sudden, we see Dinah. She's almost like an X-Men. She's deciding that, hey, maybe I can hone my ability, maybe I can focus it, and I can be as powerful as I can be. Where is this coming from? Why is it coming out now? Should this not have been the case from the beginning of her career? I guess we can assume that this incarnation, this pre-New 52 Dinah, has less of the experience and training that the pre-New 52 Canary had. And I also, yeah, I was like dead on, hey, man, that's Banshee. Just using those sound waves to fly. On the other side of the cliff, I think it's odd that everyone runs inside. And number one, they don't try to help Ivy, who is now, I mean, hey, the rest of her skin fell off the cliff there. I mean, she's 99% human, basically. And number two, no one freaks out and asks Dinah where that came from. I mean, I would be right there, be like, yo, what what was up with that? You, you were flying around like a flying squirrel. I... I don't know. The look and the final panel really gives me sort of a bad feeling about what's going to happen, but I'm interested to see how everything turns out and whether all of my, I just have a lot of questions. I think all of my questions will be answered. It was not the best. I think there are like a lot of little tidbits of information really thrown at you that don't necessarily all add up. Let's see, 7.5 divided by 2, maybe 3.5, 3.75, but doesn't look like that. I'll give this a 3.5, 3.5 out of 5 bats. Better rings. No, don't even bother because she's done it for all six issues. <laughs> I really, you got to tell me. When I first do it, or else I'll get... No, I just wanted to see when how long it would take for <laughs> you to figure it out, or someone Man. else knows. that's all. Oh, I... Moving on, moving on, because we only have 30 minutes left. Okay. Birds of Prey, number 10, gets a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman Incorporated, number 2. Hello, Talia. How did you find us? I recognized your personal guard. It was just a matter of following her. Written by Grant Morrison, illustrated by Chris Burnham. This is a good one. This is the story of Talia, titled Eye of the Gorgon. We start off with Ra's al Ghul. Yeah, that's Ra's al Ghul meeting Talia's biological mother, Melisande. And with quick cuts, we go to the present where we see interstitials of Talia confronting her father. Again, one of the million times she does that. And cuts of her life growing up. And the story is basically the origin story of Talia Head, a.k.a. Talia Ghul. So Rach is like, ha, I didn't think you'd ever challenge the Dark Knight detective, but I can't allow it. And we go back to, we see Taya growing up, fighting ninjas, being trained in several arts and disciplines. We see her seeing Rachel Google with the Lazarus Pit for her first time and what effects it has on him. We see her being bought a pony. We see her being trained in the arts of science. 
we see her being bought pretty much anything she wants and being treated like a princess, although she has little time to spend quality time with her dad, Raish. She runs into a woman, well, she runs into some sort of a fortune teller who talks about her names and the constellations and how the bright star Beta Percy is the demon star called the Winking Eye of Gorgon, Al Ghul, which sounds like Al Ghul, which somehow connects to Raish Al Ghul. And she tells Taya that this is all flashback when Taya's a child, that she is her real mother, but Ubu takes her away before they figure out whether that's true or not. After a few more scenes of Taya growing up and being placed in interesting positions, including an assassin, assassin hired hit on Raish Al Ghul from the Sensei, we see where Taya starts to rebel against Raish. And by the time she's in preparatory school or college, we see her go up against Dr. Dark, who first appeared in the 70s. So we see the fateful meeting between her and the Batman for the first time. And we see scenes of past Daniel O'Neill issues where she unmasks Bruce to heal his injuries and finds out who he is. We see several instances of them. We see the big scene from that one Batman 200-something issue where they have that sword fight in the desert. He's stung by the scorpion. Rich is like, ha-ha, I defeat you forever. And she kisses him, and he kisses back, and she gives him the antidote. And then we see the famous scene where Batman, who's shirtless, screams Rage and freaks him out. And then we see the consummation of Bruce and Tyler, which leads to the birth of Damien, where Batman basically says that was the best sex ever. And she's like, our child will be a new Alexander, a leader. He's like, whoa, 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 a child. Actually, I think you drank my drink, and I don't remember anything. I want to go home. Great parenting there, Batman. So we see the birth of Damien, and basically quit scenes that lead into Batman and Son, where she, for, like, like in the first story, Damien story, she says, Damien chooses your father or me, and he says, I'd rather we all be together. Cut back to the present, where Taya has a really creepy look on her face, saying that she now believes that, that Damien is dead as of last issue. And she's playing her endgame against Batman and actually places Raish under hostage control as opposed to what he thought he was doing for her. So she puts on a black mask looking mask, a black skull, and says that she has Raish's undivided attention, tells him to look into the eye of the Gorgon. Next issue, the resurrection of Madges Malone. All right, Batman Incorporated number two. This was a great issue because it basically told the entire history of Talia al Ghul from what we know from back in the 70s with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams up into the more recent stuff that Grant Morrison did with Batman and Son. Told basically a complete story. I mean, if you needed to have an origin story, everything was here for the most part. They included, you know, Birth of the Demon, Son of the Demon, Bride of the Demon, bits and pieces, not a lot of it, but bits and pieces from those. I mean, for the most part, there was everything you ever wanted to know in t- about Talia right here in this issue, which is, which is a feat nonetheless, because this, I mean, it, this is a character that's been around for f- almost 40 years. So to take a character and condense their entire history and point out all of the important things in that character's history for over 40 years. Yes. To point out all of the, the important things within this character. I mean, quite honestly, can you even take a character out there, such as Riddler or Joker, and say, hey, by the way, this is all the important facts in this person's life, and this is what's really important? No, you really can't. But Talia, you could do that. You could probably do that with Raz al Ghul, which I will say Raz until I die. <laughs> but for the most part, I mean, it was cool to see the origin. Besides that, back to present time, not origin story for Talia al Ghul, it was really interesting to see that she's basically taking over the League of Assassins, She's putting her father under house arrest because she wants to run this this game against Batman to see if she can defeat Batman. And ultimately, it just seems like it all comes back to the fact that she's a scorned woman who's pretty pissed that Batman 
you know, kind of ignored the fact that they had some great sex. So, I mean, Chris Burnham's art was good for the most part. I, I really enjoyed this. Four out of five batteries. I really love this issue, dog. And, like, I, I feel that, like, this is going to, people think this is going to come down to the continuity. And it, and it does. But it, it is more than that because it was very well told. And more than the writing, I really, really, really love the art. This is my favorite work by Chris Burnham thus far. Because before I was like, you know, he's, he's, he's good, you know. And then like I saw what he was doing and like his style was a little gritty for me, but I still enjoyed it for what it was, for, for what it was. This was so expressive. It almost looked like it was like Disney kind of art. Like the people's eyes are all big and, you know, and everything. And like, and it looked like, like, like just, it's just very, very cartoony, but at the same time, very, very, different and very very talented like there's not a single phone in panel i feel in this entire thing it's interesting because this one this this for the first time in a long time really made me like character of talia because i have to say that like a couple of years i kind of like bulked up on my racial ghoul stories and i got batman tales of the demon trade which collects like the first like dozen or so race issues and i had to say when you read that or at least i did Taya's really not that great of a character or at least she wasn't She's really a blank slate because literally her whole character is, I love you, Batman. Oh, but I love you too, father. Oh, the, the, the drama. I can't choose between either of you. And honestly, like when it came, when it comes down to like who is Batman's greater love, Taya or Catwoman, I would go with Catwoman just because she's more interesting. But while I initially liked Taya as a character, really, it comes down to the fact that she's really kind of like this, this simpering, diminutive, like kind of nothing person. But this issue kind of builds her up and explains her backstory. And not only that, but it goes forward with it and says, okay, now it's, it's payback time. I'm not having these guys rule me anymore. You know, I'm going to kick Batman's butt. And I really, really liked it. And I think part of that is because of Burnham. And part of that is because of Morrison, because he literally takes pretty much all the major important tie moments from the Denny O'Neill era in the early 70s and incorporates them here for Batman Incorporated. Like, the scene where she meets Dr. Dark, including some specific panels, like the panel where they get on the express train is right out of, as I hold it to my face, Detective Comics 4, 411 into the Den of the Death Dealers. And if, if you look, like, and you see it, like, in the big splash face with Batman, but, like, you can see Batman's disguise as the old, like, Asian woman. Like, that's that's cool because you don't really notice it, but it's there just to kind of connect back towards the issue. And, like, some of the dialogue is, is the same, like, when he says, come, my dear, time to depart. But some of it's different because those are scenes that we didn't see before. And you see how she reacted in, the, in those certain scenes. And, of course, one of the big moments from the 70s is, like, that sword fight between Batman and Race where they have the, the na- uh, not the naked, but, like, the shirtless sword fights. And he's poisoned and Talia saves him. And he just screams Race. It's a very, very iconic Neil Adams shot. And I like the fact that Chris Burnham, reinterpreted it because i like the fact he didn't just swipe the picture he just did it slightly differently like pose is different but he still has batman's hairy chest and it's like salami sized nipples and all that but i really like Rache's face where he says you know like by the gods are you man or fiend from hell and like he has those bat shaped eye pupils that's really really cool i liked the i find it it funny how bad batman acts once the idea of a child comes into because it it really does make him like a deadbeat dad but in a comical way so i don't really get mad at it so it's like he likes Taya, but then he doesn't. So it's it's inconsistent. But I kind of buy it because it you kind of feel like he doesn't he kind of doesn't he's not made up his mind on himself. And it does kind of go back to that Leviathan Strikes issue where he was very very emotional with her over the phone. 
And at the end, like I said during my synopsis, I love Taya's like just like like how 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 nutty she looks at the end when she says, you know, he, I promise love, and the detective chose war. And Victor, like, like I buy her as a credible villain and as a threat because there's nothing more, you know, evil than like like somebody you love going after you. And like, I really am excited for what's going on. This is like the the watch out book for me now. And I want, I, and I'm looking forward to seeing Talia kick some ass. Five out of five batterings. There is not a single thing in this issue that I don't love. This is, I I'm so happy that Batman Inc is back because so far we've had two issues and both of them I've just been so excited to read I've read way too many times considering the, the amount of books that we need to cover and it's just it's this one that I keep instead of like double checking that I've read all the other ones fully I've read this one like five times I absolutely love it like even though I don't know all of the history and stuff like with Talia and stuff like I haven't got the Tales of the Demon which I know I really should have picked up by now, but like even not knowing that, I recognize some of these panels and I know where some of these things are just from history and it makes me want to look back to the past more. And it's like, even without that, I just recognize how like the steeped in history this is. I love the fact that we didn't just jump straight in with, Oh, look, Robin's dead or Robin isn't dead or what's going on. Cause although I'm sure he isn't, it's, it does leave you questioning just the fact that we haven't gone back to that yet and instead it's just we taken a completely different direction looking at Talia. I I love the art in it. I think it's fantastic. Especially the the title page I just thought was really great. Race holding up Talia like Simba on Pride Mountain. <laughs> and just although Race does look a bit beefier than I'm used to seeing him, but I don't I mean just the art, the colouring, everything really works in this book. I think Chris Burnham and Grant Morrison really seem to have a connection in the work. I love that, like, just things, for example, when Sensei's men try to attack them, we just see, like, them climbing out of the water and then Raish clapping his hands and then the battle's over. You don't need to see it. And it's just, like I said, there's not a single thing in this issue that I don't love. The only thing I got slightly confused about was Batman jumping off the train holding the woman costume because the first time I read it I thought it was Tully's mother from earlier in the issue but looking back on it over one of the many times I realised what it actually was and it made sense just some of the art tricks in it I just think are really clever like Don's already mentioned the bat heads in Raish's eyes when Batman bursts in we got the links to Talia and Damien in that panel where they're both being trained to attack the League of Assassins yeah just seeing that, that scene again with Robin meeting Batman and seeing the the lead up here to things like Batman R.I.P. and the Black Glove and things like that. It's just I, I, next issue matches Malone is back. It's yeah. I'm just so excited for this series and like if I had to give up comics and just read one, this would be the one that I read. So five out of five batterings. Well, I'm sure that fans of the Batman Universe Comic Podcast remembers my, as Donovan likes to say, rage quit on the previous issue. And so you're probably wondering what it's all going to say, you know? And so let me just say that I enjoyed this issue. But what? before I get to oh boy, the sensei has mentioned who can forget that wonderful story in Batman Odyssey. And, you know, let's just take a moment to reflect on that. 
Okay. <laughs> I love the scene where Talia's walking with a young man gaping at her. I guess her beauty. And then, of course, the next panel shows her being surrounded by this group of men and the young man being shoved aside. I just thought that was sort of comical. I just really enjoy this issue, the focus being on Talia and her history. And, hey, guess what? It wasn't like a sexist kind of comic like all the other female-driven comics are. It was great. I don't think I've really ever had the experience of reading her backstory, so it was great for me, like it was for Joe. It was great to see her relationship with her father and her beloved, of course. So, shippers, you'll really enjoy this. I loved the quote, did you put something in my drink? Uh, that was just that was just great. But I wonder if this story negates actually some of the things that happens in some of the demon, some of the strange stances and, and the time, the way like it all comes together. It was fun to go back and see where the old woman was on the train once you see Batman was in disguise. So it's kind of like a werewolf situation. Now, my main problem with this story, or I guess problems, were the intro, which really throws you... I think in the middle of something, and it, it does not come to you naturally. It's just, I thought, wait, who is this person with Rach? Like, the first page or the first two pages really have to grab you, and this sort of, like, turned me off, like, wait, I'm already confused, and it's the first page. But it quickly did redeem itself, so that was my first problem, but, you know, it got better. The second problem was the sloppy transitions throughout. It really happened before, during, and after the fight between Rache or Roz and Batman in the desert. You know, for example, one panel is Rache and Talia talking in the present day, and then the next, right next to it, is in the past, and it picks up right in the middle of a conversation, and it really makes no sense because there was no lead-up to, like, the question that was asked, and he's just commenting on something. And there are just some really quick things that, like, if you are not paying attention, you will not get it, and it's just transitions are really big for me. If they're written well, it can really make the book. But if they are written poorly, then I feel like that can just really pull it down because it just does not read seamlessly. But, you know, I it was a great issue, to be honest. And in general, no, I do not like Grant Morrison and his writing. But this was well done. And I will always give credit where credit is due. I don't, you know, harp on something. So a four out of five, battering. All right, so Batman Incorporated number two gets a total of four and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our final book, Nightwing number 10, written by Kyle Higgins, art by Eddie Barrows. The future will have to wait. You just ran out of time. The issue starts off with kind of a monologue of Dick Grayson talking about the history and how every city has a historic district, and unfortunately... Gotham City's historic district has kind of gone to the crapper. He's investigating the Strayhorn Brothers' apartments. The Strayhorn Brothers were the two brothers that were actually murdered, and his Escrima sticks was used to actually cause the murder, so the police believe. As he gets to the apartment, he sees a odd symbol on the ground, which is an Alpha and Omega symbol. It turns out the, the people, the two brothers, actually had this on them, but it was burned off of their skin. And the the symbol translated from Greek means beginning, end. As Nightwing is investigating, the cops show up and the SWAT team is there. And basically, Dick Racing gets a phone call from Lucius Fox while he's fighting off the SWAT team, talking about how he looked over this investment idea that Dick has. And he thinks it's a really cool idea, but the problem is that, you know, it's going to cost money. And in order to get the money, he's going to have to go to somebody like Bruce Wayne. Well, he goes, well, I don't really want to go to Bruce Wayne. He goes, well, 
how do you feel about working with Tony Zuko's daughter? We then cut back to the Strayhorn's apartment, which Nightwing is no longer at, and Commissioner Gordon pops up and starts talking to Detective Nye and tells him that, unfortunately, he seems to be going at this situation with Nightwing a little bit harder than he should be. At City Hall, Commissioner Gordon is talking to the Deputy Mayor Kavanaugh, who's basically saying, how did Nye get put onto this case? Isn't it Nye who framed Batman for murdering someone in the past? In turn, Commissioner Gordon says, yes, that's true, but I thought Mayor Hattie's stance on Batman was, you know, not to help. And he says, don't worry, I'm not interested in that. I'm about to be involved in some change that's going to happen in Gotham. On the other side of Gotham, at a different time, Sonia Zuko, Sonia Branch, also known as, is walking with Dick Grayson, hearing about his idea. And basically, the pitch that Dick Grayson has is that he wants to revitalize Amusement Mile in the heart of the historic district of Gotham City. He says that he wants to bring the, the actual circus, Haley Circus, as a matter of fact, to the main attraction of this new Amusement Mile section. So we see Dick Grayson going to talk to Jimmy, the clown, and basically tries to tell him to convince everyone to stay in Gotham and put Haley Circus as like the main attraction for this new amusement mile. At a tattoo parlor across town, we see a person getting some ink on their arm when all of a sudden Nightwing is in the back and confronts the tattoo artist about the Strayhorn brothers who had the tattoos on their arm. In turn, Nightwing finds out that somebody else is looking into it, and it's Detective Nye who's already talked to the tattoo artist. Then we end up seeing three people in some full suits end up trying to attack Nightwing. Nightwing pretty quickly makes quick use of them, ties them up, starts to interrogate them, and in turn finds out that Robbie, the what appears to be the youngest of the three, has no problem opening his mouth once Nightwing, you know, is holding him above the uh, skyline in Gotham City. He finds out exactly where this new organization is, and turns out they're in the clock tower on 42nd Street. As he opens up the skylight and goes inside, he sees a very organized, extremely organized group of people all wearing suits, having lots of weapons, and being led by somebody named Paragon. Paragon actually sees Nightwing, shocks him, Nightwing falls to the ground, and Paragon says, the future of the city hinges on your death. Next issue, Paragon Shift. Nightwing number 10. This was an interesting issue. Not only did it play into and address things that happened during Night of Owls, but it also addressed some of the events that happened prior to Night of Owls with the Scream of Sticks and the murder that Dick Grayson was framed for a while back. In addition to that, we see it tie into how the circus is going to play in, since we've already seen the circus become, you know, as as was mentioned in an interview early, the albatross around Dick Grayson's neck. You know, what is he going to do with it? Although at the same time, let me start off by saying, well, I'm not starting off, but let me say this. Okay, I thought this was a good issue. There was one thing that I did find just a little odd. Batman number one, we saw Bruce Wayne pitching to the entire elite of Gotham City, hey, I want to revitalize Gotham City, and I want to revitalize the area that has Crime Alley. That's what he said. So, at the same time, now, okay, fine, we're ten issues in. Now Dick Grayson is saying, hey, you know what? I want to revitalize the historic district of Gotham City. I want to revitalize the amusement mile, and I'm going to do it all on my own without the help of Bruce Wayne. Well, that's great, but... Isn't that the same thing that Bruce Wayne's doing on a different, in a different side, you know, a different part of town? 
that was my only complaint about this was it just seems as if this is something that we already have talked about within the last 10 months that is now popping up in a different book, which, again, we've seen this happen in books this very same day, where things are happening that have already happened in other series within the same 10-month time frame. That was my only complaint. Overall, I think the idea of Paragon is a cool idea. I, th- I like the idea of Sonya Zuko being brought into the mix. Deputy Mayor Kavanaugh, I, th- I want to see what, where that goes because, quite honestly, the idea of Mayor Hattie and having and Gotham City having this corrupt mayor, it, it, I think it's worn out its welcome, and I think it's time for a change as far as that goes. So maybe this Deputy Mayor Kavanaugh will be that change that we need. Paragon... Sounds like a cool idea. Republic of Tomorrow, again, sounds like a cool idea. I'm interested, like I said during the interview, because the interesting thing about this is if all of the superheroes were not there, we've asked this question time and time again. I've seen it in so many different books that dissect Batman as a character. If the heroes in Gotham City were not there, would the actual villains still be there? Would they feel the necessity to be there, or does Batman and the entire Bat family draw these villains to Gotham City because they're there? It's a question time and time again that's asked, but it very rarely is ever asked inside of comics. And I'm interested to see how this goes, specifically because now we have villains who are there to eliminate the heroes, believing that this is the reason of why Gotham City is the way it is, is because of the heroes. It's an interesting point. I want to see where it goes. I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. I really like this issue too. This was, to me, this felt like, like Tyler Hickens is back on track to where he wants to, what he wants to do with Nightwing. This felt like issue one and kind of setting up the status quo and like moving forward with like an idea of where to take the character away from all that circus, circus stuff. The frame up with the murder is it, working a lot better than I thought it was going to. I thought it was being a lot, a lot more prolonged. And I like the, I like that like, because he saved a government official's life, he's like, no, let's figure out how to, a way to exonerate this guy. Let's, 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 I don't care what the mayor says, let's do that. I thought that the, the subplot with Detective Nee and like the whole, oh, by the way, he framed Batman a while back, but that was weird. I thought it was kind of interesting that we, that, that something like that we've never seen before. I actually kind of find that funny. I don't really mind it. I thought it was kind of interesting. I like that Sonya Branch is brought back. I like that I like that the circus is not completely abandoned. I didn't really like the stuff of the circus, but I like the fact that the character of Dick Grayson wouldn't just drop it just because the plot has to has to change. I like that they're kind of dealing with it with consequences and stuff. I thought the art was was good. Again, we have Eddie Barrow's kind of bowing out after a while, like like halfway through the game. The second half's art wasn't bad. I, I do prefer Eddie Barrow. So although he did look a little restrained at the beginning, this felt like an old school Nightwing issue, which I like. So I will give it four out of five better ranks. I didn't think this was bad, but uh, I'm glad that in this issue we're not just looking at the history solely of the of Nightwing and or Gotham because that is something that I really am kind of getting bored of. But at the same time, I still didn't really enjoy this issue all that much. I think I just I don't think it's the character because I've said before, you know, I, my introduction to Batman was with Dick Grayson as Batman, so I'm not sure if it's just. Dick Grayson as Nightwing that I don't like, or maybe it's just Carl Higgins' take on him, but I'm just not really liking the series so far. I'm not sure if it's how serious it is or just what it is. I just can't really get into it. And same with Red Hood, although I'll admit this is better than that, but I think it's just a, a preference that I can't really get into it, and it, it's nothing wrong with it. I just, it's not really my taste. I do like the art when it is Eddie Barrows, then it kind of drops in quality but it was a 
good issue, I guess. I just I didn't really enjoy it. I do like the fact that it's linking back to previous issues and it ties up story elements or it kind of at least carries them on so that they're not forgotten. But like I said, this is not really my favourite series, so I'll give it three out of five batterings. I really wanted you to say, it's really not my cup of tea, but oh. I can see it. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, uh, let's see here. Some of the zoom-ins in the beginning, uh, I think really giving the issue a detective effects are slightly disorienting, but it was kind of cool. It was almost like Batman Arkham City-esque. What is so special about these stray horns that Gotham PD would send in SWAT? I do wonder about that. And how did they know that Nightwing was there to begin with? So those are some some questions that I have. I didn't know that Nightwing's suit opened up like that. Was anyone else kind of agape, you know, and they saw him take off his... I don't pay much attention. Did you pay much attention? Oh, (laughs) I guess because I'm the token female. Oh, great. We have another cop that's interested in a member of the Bat family and is heavy with the Force. And Gordon is going after him, too. This is just like the Dark Knight. So another connection, another sort of overlap between books. When did all this stuff happen with Nye and Batman? There seems to be a lot of history there, but I don't know when it happened. Is is this Nye character a character that's been here before? Is he new? Or He's new. Okay. So let me... Let me get this straight. After seven issues of building up the circus and giving Dick such a huge role in it and really pushing it, he's abandoning this and going the way of Bruce, just as Dustin said, and trying to help Gotham. Well, you know, I guess this is going to be a theme now, but he he wants to strike out on his own, but he doesn't want to be like Bruce, but he's going to do the same thing as Bruce. doesn't really make sense to me. I can't see Dick dealing with any Zuko ever rubs me the wrong way. Of course, we're going to have to start shipping them now. Great. And he says that he wants to carve his own path without Bruce, like I said before, but he's still going to need someone to help him. I mean, doesn't he have some sort of money? I mean, he's going to pay some circus members' salaries. Where's that coming from? Some things just don't really add up. This issue takes weeks, and it's investigating, just like Batgirl does, from one thing to another without showing us the in-between or just sort of finding convenient connections that me down the story path. And Grace, of course, we go from the Owls to Paragon. Oh, I don't know. I I guess you guys are more taken with this guy than I am. I'd say Gotham is more of a character these days, just like everything going around it. And I'm more invested in seeing that than these kind of hacks that are popping up everywhere. So I guess I'll give it the lowest score of you guys. 2.5 out of 5 batterings. I do want to say in response to your statements, Dick has already worked with Sonya Zuko in the past. That's part of the reason why he has no problem working with Sonya Zuko now, because during Detective Comics' Scott Snyder's run, Dick Grayson as Batman looked into Sonya Zuko thoroughly and found out she was actually legit, and she was trying to get away from her family's crime background. In addition to that, they did also state that Dick has money, he just doesn't have enough money to to fund the revitalization of Amusement Mile and, and the money that he does have is the life insurance policies that his parents had where it was put into a trust when he was a child by Bruce Wayne and that's why he has money but he just doesn't have enough money to do the entire project so that's why he needed a bank. Bruce Wayne doesn't give him money? Isn't he a, an well, adopted son? Him. No, not pay him but like 
I, don't know, I guess so. I think it's a pride thing. Okay, we'll just cut that part out because we don't need a, any kind of weird. Uh, <laughs> Bruce Wayne pays Dick Grayson. What does he pay him for? <laughs> <laughs> We're better than that. Not anymore for like an allowance type thing. I guess not now he's grown up, but you know. If you were rich, why would you need an allowance? Or if you were, if your dad or adopted dad was a rich dad, why would you need allowance anyway? You just get what you want. Or that would be the assumption, I guess. I guess maybe I'm assuming too much. Anyway. Alright, Nightwing number 10 gets a total of three and a half out of five batterings. That's all of our books. Uh, let's start with John with Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to another episode of Back Books for Beginners. I'm your host, John, and this week we will be reviewing Catwoman, Prelude to Legacy. This collects Catwoman issues 33, 34 and 35, and was released in May, June and July 1996. It was never released as a trade paperback and has only ever been issued as single issues. According to Comic Chronicles, in the months that it was released, the issue topped out at number 33 and fell to number 34 by July. It was written by Chuck Dixon and has art by Jim Ballant. So, let's get our claws into Catwoman Prelude to Legacy. I am Catwoman. We open with Catwoman on a jet ski going to steal a gadget for a rival company. She steals the gadget but becomes suspicious as, on her way out, she passes two knocked out guards that she distinctly remembers not having taken down. She is right to be suspicious as she is then attacked by ninjas. Catwoman dispatches them easily only to be challenged by Hellhound who is in charge of the ninjas. She gives Hellhound the slip only to be discovered by the guards and is shot at. As Selina flees, she takes a knock to the back of the head and falls unconscious. Catwoman wakes up in a locked room on a boat. Hellhound explains that he is working for someone else, who is revealed to be called the Collector. He tells her that he plans to sacrifice her, which, understandably, Selina does not take very well at all. Catwoman breaks out, hot wiring a car and running over some of the ninjas. However, Hellhound is one step ahead and catches the car using a crane and dumps her and the vehicle over the side into the sea. Selina breaks out of the car and swims for the surface. However, she is captured again by the hound hound who was waiting for her. Collector explains that several thousand years ago, an Egyptian discovered a large circular disc in a hidden chamber. He wants her to set off the hidden traps so he can take the loot. Unsurprisingly, again, Catwoman isn't particularly happy about this and once more tries to kill the Collector. She fails. She is transported to the hidden chamber which is in the middle of, presumably, the Sahara Desert. 
She enters the chamber and with the help of a former priest of the Order of St. Damas, called Umberto, begins to take on the various traps. Meanwhile, on the surface, Hellhound and his ninjas are attacked by the League of Assassins, who are also after the disc. For more information, see Bane of the Demon. Underground, Selina and the former priest discover the first trap, which is a slide that leads to a very large drop with spikes on it. Catwoman saves them, but they lose the book which has all the information on what they are to face, instead having to rely on Umberto's memory. Meanwhile, back up on the surface, Hellhound is losing to the League of Assassins, and he is forced into the hidden chamber too. Catwoman and Umberto escape the second trap, which was a moving wall. They then have to avoid spikes which come out of the floor and ceiling. Selina examines the spikes and discovers they had been lubricated, concluding that someone is obviously maintaining the traps. The next set of traps are a different series, and we see swinging axes, which they avoid, as well as a moving floor, a flooding chamber, spinning discs, stepping stones, rollers with spikes on them. The final trap is a room where the walls move in, which they avoid by going to the ceiling, as only the lower part of the wall moves. They discover the Weird of Plagues, which Umberto begins to explain, and begins to emphasise the power behind the will, when they are interrupted by Hellhound, who attacks Selina. He knocks her out, but only to be attacked by a man in a sheep skull, and knocked out as well. Selina wakes in a cell and is spoken to by a voice she recognises, and the issue ends with her exclaiming, You, to a hulking shadow. So, in review, this isn't a terrible comic. It's just not brilliant either. I think, as you could tell by the review, I started to lose interest quite quickly in what was going on. The traps went on, and it didn't really seem to go anywhere, and it doesn't really seem to add anything. I know that it's going to link into Legacy, obviously, but I still just thought that this could have been done elsewhere probably in batman legacy it could have been explained briefly that that's how she got there or alternatively she could just be skulking around looking for something and have been caught which would have been much more interesting and a lot shorter and probably not needed three issues to explain it i did enjoy the writing and i did enjoy the art um the art by jim ballant is always really really good He's got a nice style and he can draw females really well without resorting to the horrible cheesecake which seems to populate a lot of the modern comics that we read nowadays. The dimensions are always really good and he did make the traps look quite interesting. I thought Chuck Dixon does, as always, a perfectly standard job on the writing. He seems to get the character of Selina Kyle pretty much spot on. And she doesn't come across as obnoxious or weird or doing anything that's out of character. I just felt that the issues were boring, if I'm being honest. And probably not worth the time unless you're a really dedicated reader and you want to read everything. Because I've got a funny feeling that there's probably going to be some explanation in Legacy as to why Catwoman is there. So... As you can tell by the fact that I'm sort of struggling really to find anything exciting to say about it, but at the same time struggling to find anything terrible to say out of it, I'm going to give this 3 out of 5 Batarangs. I would only really pick it up if 
your reading legacy and want a bit of backstory as to what's going on. And to be honest, you could probably just read Bane of the Demon and ignore this series altogether. So with that being all said, next episode we review Batman Legacy. Something that I've been looking forward to as it starts to build up. And this is one of the more popular Batman storylines. So, thanks for listening. I've been your host, John, and now I'll hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. Take care now. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are checking out the next set of books for the next episode, which is slowly leading up to No Man's Land, one of my favorite stories of all time. Alright. So with that, let's get into our DCU Spotlight and briefly tell you about a book that you should check out within the DC Universe. And we do mean briefly, if I may. I'll start out with a books that have been countering a bit of, you know, fan controversy and recommend the Before Watchmen books. And I won't specify specifically which one, but like the ones that have come out as of this podcast are the Night Owl one, the Silk Spectre one, the, the Minutemen one with the original Night Owl, and the Comedian one. And by the time, by the time the show comes out, you'll probably have the Ozymandias Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan one. I've been reading them. They're, they're pretty good. They're not like, if you're expecting Alan Moore level Watchmen changing the game forever kind of thing, you're not going to get that. And you probably shouldn't expect that, but they are good for what they were. The, the talent like Brian Azzarello and Jim Michael Straczynski and Amanda Connor do very good work, particularly the Silk Spectre and Comedian ones are actually very good because they kind of go against the grant and the backstories for those characters make a lot of sense and the art's very good. Those are very, very solid comics. You should not really hold your heart close to them being Watchmen prequels, I would suggest, because while they are good and, you know, it's, it's, it's entertaining to kind of like put them in continuity, you don't have to. And like, because it, a lot of people are upset that they exist in the first place. If you kind of just take them for what they are, just, which are just a money grab, they're not that bad. So I would, I would, I would suggest for a good time, probably the before Watchmen comics. <laughs> for a good time, call Catwoman. Sorry. <laughs> Stella, go ahead. You, you're you next. Oh, I am? <laughs> Please, God, don't suggest Young Justice. No, I am not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to introduce the Amikami series that is focusing on female-led either superheroes or supervillains. Yes. After a three-week introduction to a Japanese manga-style version of Wonder Woman, which was written by Jimmy Palmiotti, Justin Gray, and illustrated by Amanda Connor, now we're getting to a three-week Batgirl, which is still written by Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray, but now it's drawn by Sanford Green. And Barbara is Batgirl, but now she has a Robin sidekick, and it's Carrie, and I assume it's Carrie Kelly from Earth-31. And it's just a big villain team-up with Duella Dent, Catwoman, Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn, Cheetah, and a secret partner, which is kind of, we're led to believe it's some sort of female cyborg. But it's just, it's fun. Obviously, it's it's a take on sort of those statues that we've seen coming out and the figures from kind of an anime take on everything. It's just fun kind of stuff, focusing on these females. Right now, Batgirl is captured, and Robin's sort of out on her own trying to figure out what she needs to do. But if you want kind of a step away from the arm, and you can get this, they're only digital, and they're 99 cents but that's not that. If you just want to step away from the norm and something that's fun and doesn't weigh you down like Gail Simone written comics, then maybe you should check this out. There you go. I'll be recommending Action Comics number 10. After a, a few not-so-great issues, it's kind of back on form. With the last issue as well, it was 
that was a good issue, but this one's really back to form and it's it seems to be Clark Kent back in the in the past as we were promised with this series opening and you know, he's back to the T shirt and jeans, but we also kind of have him in the present with his proper uniform and just talking to the Justice League, him interacting with it and I, I think it's a really great issue, you kind of get insight into a younger Superman and his relationship to the Justice League, which is one which I think is in one issue done better than the entire origin story for the Justice League by Jeff Johns, but it's just me. All right. And my suggestion, which I know some people are thinking, why would I possibly suggest this, but All-Star Western number 10. And the reason being is, you know, last month, Night of Owls, we talked about All-Star Western. We actually reviewed it on the episode and I gave it a two out of five batteries. And that was mostly because of the fact that there really was not a whole lot to do with the Court of Owls. There was, like, two panels that showed off a talent, and that was essentially the extent of the crossover between All-Star Western and the Night of Owls event. Now, I don't know, again, this is my complaint at DC Editorial, but I don't know whose idea it was to make that the, the month for All-Star Western to crossover. But All-Star Western number 10 was chalked full of Court of Owls stuff. Not only do we see Alan Wayne and a nefarious member of the Crime Bible, but we also see the Court of Owls trying to figure out a way to take out the Crime Society that, you know, gets all of their information from the Crime Bible. This is a direct tie into events that happened in Batwoman. We see the Court of Owls making votes based off of things that they need to get taken care of inside of Gotham City to make Gotham City a better place. They reference... A number of different things, such as the last issue where the Talon kills the head of the sanitation department. Lots of things happen. But in addition to that, all of that great Court of Owls things happens. In addition to that, Jonah Hex gets laid. I know that's crazy, but he does. But even more so in addition to that, the backup feature was almost nearly as good as the main feature. The backup was a Batlash. A lot of people probably don't know who Batlash is. I, of course, do know who Batlash is because my knowledge of Batlash comes from Justice League Unlimited, the animated oh, yes. series yeah. from years ago. There was a nice, I believe, two-part episode that featured Batlash and a number of the other DC Western heroes. Batlash was in there, and Batlash is where the co-feature was, and it was probably not only one of the better, most, the, the better drawn backup stories slash art that I've seen in a while, but the story was so cleverly devised to make it basically an origin story for Batlash, but also to show how clever and 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 sly Batlash is. Highly recommend it. Please check it out. This is a series that, again, as I've said numerous times before, plays into the Batman universe, even though it has horrible timing of playing into the Batman universe. So I'll start Western number 10. Yeah, I was about to ask why that didn't have a Night of the Owls label under it, since that seems like it it was better than the other one that we had to read. I have no idea. I wish someone would have came up with that idea, though, because it was a lot better. All right. So that is everything for DC Spotlight. Let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. We'll be covering Batwing number 11, Detective Comics number 11, Batgirl number 11, Batman number 11, and Batman and Robin number 11. So, again, only a short amount of books to cover in the next episode. Hopefully we can possibly get to a feature. But then again, we'll be doing the wrap-up from San Diego Comic-Con. So chances are that...
As I said earlier, make sure you are checking out the websites because as you're listening to this, the giant event that is happening within the Batman books and Scott Snyder's new story arc has already been announced as you're listening to this. So head over to the website and check out all the details. That is everything for this episode. Make sure you head over to the website to check out all the daily news related to everything related to the Batman universe, movie, TV, merchandise, video game, general, and of course the comics. Make sure you head over to the forums and become a member if you do. Please be sure to send us an email letting us know to activate your account. Please leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. If you have a cell phone, check us out on Stitcher. It's an app, free app, that allows you to listen to all of our podcasts on your phone for free. Obviously, data charges apply. In addition to that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman universe. And one other quick thing I want to throw out there. You may have listened to the Batman Universe podcast, and you may have heard that Kyle Higgins, the writer of Nightwing, was our guest host on that episode, and he talks all about The Dark Knight Rises. Obviously, The Dark Knight Rises is right around the corner, but the other thing that we did announce in that episode is that we are actually running the contest for two different groups of our fans. The first group of our fans is anybody who is in the United States. It has been made available to us a uh, number of copies of a book called Batman and Psychology which explores all the psychological elements within the Batman universe. I have started reading it. I'm about halfway through. It's actually really good. It's published by the same company that published Batman of Philosophy, which I wasn't as a huge fan of, but this book is actually extremely interesting. There's case files on a number of different villains, giving some of their back history. This dives not only into the comics, but also the actual movies as well. We have a number of copies of this. The details for the contest will be on the site. This is obviously in line with The Dark Knight Rises coming out. We have a, of course, big Batman events, big Batman contests. So we have a number of those. Of course, this contest is only open to our U.S. listeners and viewers on the website. So check that out. But for our U.K. listeners, (gasps) we have a contest for you as well. Yay! We are teaming with a website called allfancydress.com, which is a custom website out of the UK, and we have a 30-pound voucher for our UK listeners. We have one 30-pound voucher. Let me rephrase that. I don't want to make it seem like everybody's going to get one. But the details for this contest will be available on the website as well. You can essentially put that 30 pounds towards almost the entire purchase price of a full-size adult Batman cowl. Just saying (laughs) actually pretty cool. They have some other Batman items that you can check out as well. Just be sure to check out the website. All the details for both of the contests will be on the general section of the website. The general section. Just just, just check it out. We'll probably have links somewhere else on the website, but check out the details for both those contests. Unfortunately, if you live anywhere but the UK and the US, we unfortunately don't have any contests available for you at this point, but... Be sure to check out the website because we might have some other contests leading up to The Dark Knight Rises or even after The Dark Knight Rises. So with that, I think that is everything. So this is Dustin. This is Donovan. This is Jai. And this is Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Stay cool.
Was that it? Was that more? No, I'm just, you ended on like, it almost sounded like you ended like mid-sentence. I know you didn't. Yeah. I, I can say it was like to be continued if you like. No, it's fine. I guess it was Banshee. Havoc. Huh? Wasn't his name Havoc? No, it was Banshee. Oh, Banshee. But, um. Okay. Make sure we edit that out so I don't sound like a complete idiot. Even though I have nothing to do with that crap. Okay. <laughs> I thought, wait, who is this person with Rach? Hey, Donovan. Sorry. Do what? Okay. Uh, um, um. Oh, no, you were just, you, you were, <laughs> like, you're Mike. I was trying to, busy. there was a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's too busy typing. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. My introduction to Batman was with Dick Grayson as Batman, so unless my dad is walking in, this is going to be on the podcast, Dad. He's walking in in his underwear and is staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the most horrific things that's ever happened. To us. <laughs> oh, what a great blooper this is! <laughs> mm. Uh, <laughs> now that he's he's done exactly what he wanted to do, which was screw with your mind. At least it was only my mind. <laughs> oh. <laughs>